What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Neanderthal Society podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. Today, this episode, we're going to be talking to Joe McKay, also known as Joe Hardcore. Joe was kind enough to set aside some time, some real time. We got a pretty lengthy interview. Um, We covered a lot of history from growing up to the current state of Philly Hardcore. We talked about the fest. We talked about Joe's beginnings and punishment, uh, singing for Shattered Realm, touring with Dysphoria, and lots, lots, lots more. Joe is somebody that I've known for over 20 years. I met him on tour with Punishment in uh, early 2001, and he's never been nothing but just an awesome, solid human. Uh, I know... (laughs) He's definitely, um, at times, been a polarizing person in the hardcore scene. Depending on where he's standing, you might feel some type of way about him. But in my experience, again, he's never been anything but a kind, good person who loves hardcore. Um, While we were recording, we picked up a little bit of background noise during the episode. Unfortunately, it was a little bit more noise than I'd gotten previous interviews, but... I didn't want to stop Joe from what he was doing. Uh, Joe was actually working on flyers. We did this interview. I'm in California. We started the interview after eight o'clock, probably closer to nine. So that would have been closer to midnight Joe's time. We went for three and a half hours on a work night, on a weeknight. Um, Joe didn't sleep. Joe stayed up making flyers for shows that he has coming up and setting aside three and a half hours to talk to me about hardcore shit from 25 years ago. (laughs) So, um, I mean, that, if that doesn't tell you how much this dude loves hardcore, I don't know what does. Uh, so I just want to say thanks to Joe for, for setting aside that time for opening up and talking about his life, um, talking about his bands, talking about hardcore, talking about just being a man and personal growth and um, just some of the changes that he's gone through in the past few years and the journey that took him from then till now and kind of all the things that brought the fest into fruition. Um, Punishment is a band that has always had a very solid connection with the Bay Area scene. Uh, as, as you'll hear in the interview, it was kind of like punishments home away from home, I'd say. And I'm sure Joe and Damien would agree. Um, we've always had a lot of love and respect for those guys and just kind of kindred spirits, you know, uh, the Philly scene and the barrier scene, there's a lot of parallels. So it was just, it was awesome to have a long in-depth one-on-one conversation with an old friend. Somebody I've known again for over 20 years, somebody that I've I've watched grow and change in the best way possible and just somebody again who loves this thing so much and does probably more than anybody else I can think of for it. So here's the Joe episode. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to everybody for following. Thank you to everybody for for supporting Neanderthal. Please check us out on Instagram at Neanderthal Society. Stay tuned. Um, We've got lots of cool shit on the way. Check us out. 
the web store, neanderthal-society.com. Check us out on Depop. And yeah, just enjoy the interview. So thanks, everybody. And much love to Joe. Check it out. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Neanderthal Society podcast. Uh, Today, we are talking to the man, (laughs) the myth, the legend, Joe McKay, a.k.a. Joe Hardcore. Was that was that an all right intro or did I fuck it up already? Nah, not not even not even close to a, a mess up. Thank you so much. <laughs> so how are we doing, man? How's everything? Life is good. And if you if you keep your face forward, you don't look at the peripherals where all the stupid shit is happening, and you have a game plan, your life can be pretty decent, even if you're not doing too much. Yeah. I see uh Philly Philly hardcore is alive and well in spite of everything. Yeah, I, um, it's a shame. It's a shame that the hardcore scene has chosen the same path of the like regular society yeah. on politicizing stuff and making things work, you know, and, and, and like against what's best for everybody. And, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I have a I have a vac, but um, I thought we were gonna push the. I thought we were gonna be the ones that push the envelope, and um. Not Philly per se, because no, but know, just the it, scene in general. I thought the scene. I thought the scene was going to lead the way in a lot of things, and um, well, in some ways we did, but it's just been amazing, kind of the backlash that's happened as a result. Well, again, it, it comes down to it, it comes down to the the people who are loud are often a very loud minority, and. uh I posted a video after the New York show just basically being like, if you're not ready to go to shows, stay home until you are. And I wasn't that kind. And um, it was interesting who would comment against it. And then the quiet DM supporting way outnumbered the people arguing me in the DM. So I feel like the weight of the world of repercussion via online has kept a solid silent majority like i'm not jumping into this fist way and i don't blame them like they say about wrestling with pigs you know they both get dirty and the pigs like it and yeah, that's absolutely what these people, and that's what these people are going for with these ideas but i thought hardcore punk was best exemplified in the west coast with the dead city punk shows and um i feel as if well, they, Phil, they dealt with their own backlash too so there was a whole Whatever. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna well, get no, into all that, is, but it was messy. What I'm saying is like for Philadelphia, we we just we got lucky that we've been doing the, the good work for the last couple of years, but well you guys have hardest, been putting in some real work for a while and kind of honestly from where I'm standing, you guys are kind of the blueprint and template for the rest of the country, you know, for what what the scene and what shows should look like, you know, what a really strong scene looks like. It's 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 interesting, and I, and that's a that's a praise that I um, it's a praise I'm willing to accept, not as on the back of Joe Harcourt, but on the back of well, it's Jeffrey earned, not it's earned, not oh. given. I mean, and oh, obviously, no, it's like, like it's it's like a lot of a lot of things had to happen over like a, a specific timeline for us to start having what we have. Like a great example is like those Earth Crazy shows that sold out when I was a kid. Philly was not thought of 
in the main East Coast strips, to be honest. And um, if if there's a, you know, like when we talk about what we work for and what we do, if there's a lasting legacy in the work that I did, which was off the backs of Sean Agnew and the people before him, it's that now Philadelphia is the must-hit play Absolutely. on the East Coast tour. And if that's if if that's all the work, uh, if that's what the work achieved after 24 years of putting on shows, then then I'll stand by it. Um, we got lucky that the venue relationship for us was really solid. In 2020, we tried to do a skate park show, and everything was run and roll. We had bands, we had a date, we were ready to rock, and then the city said, "Hey, let's." Uh, Let's just let's 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 spot let's dial this back down. Let's put the mass back into effect, yada yada. And I was counseled by people like, "Hey, listen, you can do what you want, but we would really hope that you do not go ahead and push forward against the city mandate." And so I listened and I put and I didn't pull the trigger on 2020 for this is hardcore, even a truncated version at the skate park. Mm-hmm. And, and I have my reservations on. I kind of. I understand now the way that people reacted in April of 2021 with the New York show. Yeah. That it's not a, and I hate when people are like, it's a PR nightmare. What the fuck is PR to punk rock? But um, I'm glad we didn't do it for a multitude of reasons. I'm disappointed. The, the players on the field, it's like a chessboard. The ones that would have made a big, this is hardcore happen. were not there. And not that I don't want to truncate, and we'll talk about this later on, but a, a really weak version of this hardcore isn't worth it in 2021. So um, we focus hard on the shows. And another huge aspect of this is that Bob Wilson, specifically, dude, he just sent me a shit ton of shows. We have a bunch of people all gunning for stuff, and it's not under one person, it's not under one thing. And and the vibes have been amazing. The support has been incredible. And so I think that we're in a very weird hegemonic moment for hardcore in Philadelphia where it's very peaceful, which was not the case when I grew up. Yeah. It's uh it's plentiful, which was always the case, but it's the people coming out and supporting at so many different levels are really the ones to thank. I mean, dude, when I tell you we put shows on sale and they were selling out. I was actually shocked because I thought we were thinking like ticket prices. Oh, is this too much? Do people have the money? And what we learned is and that those aren't small are... rooms either. No, 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 no. I think um, as of right now, with just the sold out shows that we've done, we sold over 4,000 tickets for wow. basically what amounts to be seven hardcore shows. That's amazing. That's a, for hardcore yeah. music. That is fucking insane. So good. Good for you guys. It's it's a win for us, and I think that the the I don't know how the the West Coast um the effect the causality when the LA shows were happening, but we inspired people in our, in our local region to start being like, all right, we got to put on too, we got to put on too, and I, and I love that nature of hardcore where, fuck yeah, we're gonna make sure that we're you know we're getting in the game too, and Baltimore dropped some shows. Um, you know, a lot of the smaller scenes put on their shows, and it's cool to see small scenes have 
hardcore pride in a sense of like we're back to i like yeah. seeing that i mean people are hungry for it as much as there's haters and naysayers a lot of people i think really they took things for granted you know and a lot of people were too cool and maybe you know bands were touring so much that it's like oh i'll catch them next month or whatever and i think we all figured out that yeah this can this can be taken away you know and a lot of people are really they're just hungry to get back in the mix and enjoy this thing that we love, you know? Well, it's, it became um, a commercial product and it became commodity to kind of like trade with. And it stopped being like what, what, it, what it was meant to be, which is like the centerpiece and like the, and like the, the town square, like as a community, every hardcore show is the town square. Yeah, we, we kind of lost the community part of it for a little bit, even though the, the music itself, like, probably was more visible than ever before, you know, because of the internet and whatever else. But well, yeah, that's exactly it. The internet, the internet transposed a layer over top where people didn't have to go to the show to buy the shirt, to make friends, to even to find the, the band, gossip. to any of it. Exactly. And I mean, it's it's one of the great arguments that Sonny and I have is the chicken and the egg. You know, like, would things have gotten bigger without the adverse uh, reaction to his videos? I, I don't know the answer, but there's also, and even he sees it at times where he's like, oh, you're, you know, he'll acquiesce on some points that sometimes the full-on availability of online stuff denigrates the quality of the, the culture. But at the same time, is well, it's overwhelming. Uh, you know, it's well, it's just insane. Well, it's like a digital. We're in a digital world now, so we can we can try to be anachronistic and go all the way back. We can go back to pagers and rotary phones, but it's not going to help us. But I also don't think that we need, as a culture, to start thinking that we have to keep up business wise and and do things outside of what we've done for the last 40 years. We can, we can speed up some process and we can make it fair for the bands and things like that. But I think that some people have come into hardcore and they haven't come in the nature of, I want to be a part of the scene. I'm so excited to get on the stage. It's like, well, once we start making moves, we're going to go over here and they come with a plan. And then yeah, they kind of come with an agenda. You know, like it it's seems super. like a lot, a lot of younger bands really, they kind of have an itinerary and even bands that I'll see bands that I've barely heard of, or they're pretty much new. They already have booking agents and whatever else. And it's like, it just a lot of unnecessary, like fluff, you know? Well, and, and so it's like premeditated. And so what, what do you want to support? Do you want to support that? Do you want to support something that has organic growth? Or do you want to be the guy who is, you know, like, like um there's a couple bands the, the one that i remember the most um was the band called the ghost inside and qu pretty quickly off the bat it was it was very like oh fuck these dudes are straight up these dudes are straight up we always we we have a funny word for what we call it pro core mm -hmm. like damn these dudes are straight pro core out here and yeah i say booking shit. agent core but yeah same thing <laughs> Well, you know, to slightly defend booking agents, because I happen to be, my toes are uh, wet in that now. Yeah, it's it's a necessary evil in hardcore at this point. Well, you know? well, that's so that so the problem was it went. It's like an unlicensed business, right? 
unlicensed, no one protecting it. And it's when it was all fair and in love at the lowest levels and in, in the very early stages, money profit wasn't really seen as like an important facet, but quickly the people that had these venues and stuff, there's a really interesting um, receipt from a show that the dead Kennedy's plays or not dead Kennedy's plays. Um, the sex missiles did on their, their U S tour. They basically got like 5% of the total gross of the show for selling a venue out. And I, and I forget the name of the promoter, but my my friend showed me like the settlement sheet and was like, are you talking about the I SF booked. show? It possibly was. Yeah, it wasn't. the Because there was a lot of people at that show. It was insane. Yeah, there, that, it was like the Winterland well, so Ballroom or something like that. It, you know, actually, I think it was that. And yeah, so, I think there was like um, two or there was like between two and four thousand people at that show. I think and, that and was their the last show is, ever. Well, that and and that's the thing. So you have this, you have this European act, right? European act. These guys are bringing the you know UK punk to America. And they're getting five percent of of a shit. It's like now the the opposite is also true. We don't need bands coming in here and demanding everything, and the promoter walking out with nothing. But there had to be there has to be a balance. And I think the fucked up part about business when it comes into hardcore punk is people in hardcore are always going to romantically or emotionally support the shit they like at a fault, which means, Hey, I really like this band. I don't care if I lose a couple hundred dollars. Um, I've even had people hit me like, dude, I really love this band. If you can confirm them, I'll pay them whatever they want. And I'm like, so you would essentially be paying 500 times what you pay for the ticket. <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you're asking me to book a band. that needs like five to $7,000. <laughs> and now we have to charge like $25 for the show. So you're going to pay 500 times that to see them. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> to me, that's nuts, but that's the emotions. And and it's, it's a typical task. It's a typical task to be a band and not realize that there's a, there's a ceiling. And I think that's the most fucked up part about all this is that there's a ceiling for a lot of hardcore, but no one who is making money off the bands and pushing them in the pro core directions are, are mentioning the ceiling. You know, it's like they're telling them to go faster, go faster, you know, like it's like a drag race and they don't want to tell them, Hey, at the end of this lap, there's a block wall and you can't get over it. Yeah. And, well, I mean, I and, think, I think you can see it and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to name drop, but I think we've all seen, um, there are those bands that they've been touring and they were kind of on that level for however many years. And now they're kind of, they're not as cool anymore and they're just kind of stuck in almost like hardcore purgatory. Does that make sense? Well, well that's exactly it because you know, uh, what happens when you go from sipping on champagne, you got to go back to Canada dry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, like, exactly. Uh, high life, the, the champagne cool, of beers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm straight at, so I don't really have any cool drink references, but, uh, one of the greatest examples of humility and just truly being honest to hardcore is sworn enemy in that regard. And uh, I, I always got to shout them guys out. Like they had major record label situations. They did giant tours. And when the rooms and the, the vibe didn't go their way, 
they didn't go the way of a lot of bands. In fact, they were like, hey, we're a hardcore band. And they're still out there getting after it, playing in front of if it's 50 kids, 150, 250 kids. And and I really respect that out of a band that's been grinded for 20-something years that they didn't say, if we don't have our cake, we're not going to eat anything. Like They went with, like, hey, we're still a hardcore band. Oh, absolutely. They're still bringing it uh, live, too. Yeah. Um, that was a weird way to start the show. We just went on like 17 chains. No, it's, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Do I you, think it's the coffee I'm drinking. I'm getting all ramped up already. <laughs> do you want to, do you want to, uh, do you want to have like not a redo, but you want to just take it back to, uh, take it back Hell to no. the beginning? No, I'm just saying is I don't want to, oh, I'm you, not, I'm not erasing put, it. It's all no, good. No, no, man. I wasn't, <laughs> I, 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 I don't want to put you in a show pocket where you couldn't, vibe it way back you know no so, you're good man you're good all right cool so yeah. uh but since you mentioned it we will take it back so you grew up born and raised in philly right yes west philly no i was born in a hospital called saint mary's which was in the neighborhood of fishtown okay. at the time it was a bad neighborhood or no no let me correct that it wasn't a bad neighborhood but it was a true working class river ward uh, neighborhood and um it's now a temple the temple is like the college they're like all oh, they, they it's a temple school now it's not a earth it's a temple hospital it's not even a christian um hospital anymore and uh actually a couple years ago i lived there like one block from that building which is so crazy but um i was born in that neighborhood to a let me think about the math here um, uh, my mom was 16 turning 17. Oh, wow. And my father was 18 turning 19. Um, working class people in the sense that um, the whole neighborhood was working class. This is an area that looks exactly like northern England. I'm envisioning it's, uh, the like the Rocky movies, basically. It's literally that neighborhood. Yeah, it's that exact neighborhood. In like fact, when he gets up and he jogs in the morning, that's that's what I'm envisioning. That's I uh, my first house was one and a half block. Actually, I'd say two and a half blocks, like physical blocks, but probably like a half mile at the most because they're long ass. That's a long ass uh, street right there called Lehigh Avenue. Yeah, my first my first house was like really close to where they shot the film. In fact, when they shot the film second movie, my mom and aunt went down there because Rocky um, Sylvester Stallone had said something in the, in the papers that all the Kensington women were like ugly and barefoot or something like that. So a bunch <laughs> of the neighborhood girls went there and they're like heckle them. That's but, funny. Um, yeah, Mickey's gym was never a gym. It's down. It's a. Uh, it was always like a weird corner that just painted and like made it. However, um, what about the pet shop? Is that there? uh, It was, but it wasn't a pet shop. They just made it. But, um, my, my second cousins from my father's side own and operate front street gym, which is in the Creed movies. Wow. That's pretty awesome. And that neighborhood in the Creed movies, I also lived in up until three and a half years ago when I moved the fuck out of the neighborhood completely. Okay. So we have an elevated train called the L, like the L. 
and it, like um the first 10 stops are just nothing but neighborhoods like our neighborhoods so i lived all along that corridor my entire life up until three years ago and in fact there was like a moment for like eight months where i lived a little bit outside of it and i couldn't even under i couldn't even deal with it i had to move back around like and then we're talking about two miles difference it fucks you up philadelphia I have cousins that never left the city except for to go up the mountains or down the shore. Yeah. Which is bizarre, but not bizarre at the same time. It's very working class still, though it's shifting, a lot of gentrification, a lot of all the same inner city problems that every city has become. It's kind of interesting how all the problems in cities have become homogenized no matter where you go. But Philadelphia in the 80s um, had a crime wave had a crack epidemic and then had, you know, everything that came after that. And then, you know, by the, and you were growing up in all of this. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, like we're, we were not the, we were not the neighborhoods that people wanted to talk about. And we were not the neighborhoods that got the funding. I got lucky that because it was still the eighties, there was still some money in the school system the public school system. And, uh, I got tested at an early age for a Mel Gitta program. So I was given access to programs and, and that exposure that I probably wouldn't have had I not, had I not tested for that thing. And so I, I, I did a little bit better than I did a little bit better than the kids who were just your average person. Cause I got to go to different school trips, got exposed to different things like operas and, different civic things downtown because it constantly took us on school trips That's cool. and got exposed to computers earlier than the other kids. But you were playing soccer too, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I played soccer from the time I was four until the time I was 32 on teams. Okay. And, uh, still a huge part of my life is watching soccer at times, but playing not so much. Um, no, like, well, and, and this is what's fucked up is like, it took skinhead music and punk rock to really get me to even give a fuck that much because we were poor. There, half these damn teams were not even on the TV, like regular ass TV. So, like, um, you know, like the major, 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 major teams, like uh, the major Italian teams, were like the top two, the top three. There wasn't this access and exposure to all this shit where you could be like a fucking fan of like a team like Ashton Villa. It's not how it happened. So like, you know, uh, for instance, I see an English soccer team play the U.S. when I was a kid. Uh, and they're like a, not even a good team, Sheffield Wednesday. I'm like, this is what we get? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so it wasn't until I got into skinhead music and shit that I started, uh, you know, because everybody would like the Hammers, you know, West Ham. Yeah. But, um. They were never on TV. So I saw Manchester City more often. And at the time, everybody who was in the soccer was Man United or um, Arsenal because they're like the two main teams everybody jocked. And me being the against her, I'm like, fuck that. So I had seen Man City. I feel a like Chelsea too. People like Chelsea. but People like Chelsea because of skinhead stuff. But again, you might see them on TV randomly. But unless, like, like, I didn't have cable that like that like that kind of like big sports cable package, so I didn't see as much. It had to be on like regular TV, 
or like the British, uh, we had BBC because of the public uh, access stuff. Mm-hmm. So we'd see that, but um, I played it all the time. In fact, it's kind of fucked up because I was a soccer player in the part of the neighborhood where all the football players were. So it was a lot of shit talking. But my uncle Dave, who's a very accomplished wood uh, woodworker and cabinet maker, who's owned his own business for almost thirty five years at this point, he was playing in the neighborhood parking lot. He was a high school star. He got a scholarship. And he tore his knee in a street ball game. And it's the only thing that stopped him from qualifying for the Junior Olympics. Oh, no. But um, soccer was very important in our neighborhoods. And, you know, not having a dad who played it wasn't a huge deal. Because, you know, I still want to play it. But it was definitely rowdy. It wasn't like it is now with beach chairs and a and socialites it was like parents threatening to fucking fight each other you know it, it was a lot different but I, I really enjoyed it and it and it kept me from it kept me from doing nothing which is the other alternative and i mean besides that i played street hockey but at the most bare level like Did we you didn't guys have even have skates games. or were you just on foot or we were on foot i mean like we did the same we exact were, thing in my neighborhood that's crazy well, we, i mean we lived we lived in the like we lived uh, three blocks from where the main train station, a bus station was. Mm-hmm. So it was working class blacks, working class whites and working class Puerto Ricans and mixed others. So it was a mixed neighborhood when the hip hop thing was like big. So like you could go to Seven Eleven, and there'd be people beatboxing or writing graffiti or like literally like, they'd be out spinning on the fucking cardboard and shit. And like, here we are trying to play hockey, but they can't play at the basketball courts. Cause that's where they sold drugs. They didn't really have rinks around. There was two rinks in adjacent neighborhoods, but you gotta have money to do that. And, and like a oh, hockey's expensive, like to be, to yeah. actually really play ice hockey. It's like, you gotta have money just to play. Same thing with football. Well, like, Honestly, man, I didn't have a dad around. Like my dad was a crackhead. Yeah, and uh, a lot of violence, a lot of chaos until the time when he and my mother got into this like the last brawl, as I always say. They got into the last big big fight, and that was the end of it. And then he didn't live with us anymore, and we moved to um, where I was talking about. And when you don't have a dad, there's shit you just don't learn. No, absolutely. <laughs> you know, like. My mom was young. Yeah, I remember like 1986. My mom's only 22 years old. So she's, you know, she's wiling out. So, and any new boyfriend that came in the house, that dude's teaching me whatever he's into. You know, I got some weird ass ones that were really into hair metal. I got some cooler ones that were into like the heavy metal comics and the heavy metal movie, you know, but like in a bizarre way, those kind of dudes. And no exposure, but those guys weren't football people either. Like, I, I can't even I can't even say that I watched a football game until like a for real whole ass football game. I remember kind of being on when I was with my dad, sort of, but not really. Like, I, I don't think I watched a full ass football game till I was in my teens. I didn't give a fuck about it. Yeah, I still hate it. <laughs> I, I I'm, I'm kind of an asshole about it, but it definitely follows the adage about bread and circuses with those Caesars. Yeah. <laughs> I think that we could all do without it, to be honest. 
But some of the people that you were were mentioning, they were, um, even though maybe you weren't doing some of the more, I guess, uh, quote unquote, traditional familial activities, as some people might. Uh, I mean, yeah. we, we grew up, you and I grew up pretty similarly. Uh, without getting into it, I'll just leave it at that. But um, some of those people were were exposing you to some of the music that you would eventually fall in love with, right? Oh, I mean, you know, the the one thing that says a lot about just how boys are raised is you br- anyone you bring up, like legit, anyone you bring up, you know, like around your, your son, if he doesn't have a father finger, they're going to be looking like, what's this guy about? Totally. You know? So there's T-shirts and there's fucking patches and a couple guys came over and was playing the guitar. And, you know, um, it was an interesting exposure at such a young level to first it was the hair metal because that shit was popular. And then it started, my mom started dating other people and it was like the thrash metal music. And then by the time I was like 10 years old, my mom started having more like a steady dude around that was starting to be a thing. And um, he got me into so much shit, like the Ramones, Wasp, took me to see so many fucking concerts. And um, he played bass, so obviously later on in my first band, I would play bass. He took us all to see Pantera. That's like, it. he was really solid, and he was in a, like a hair metal band. And they used to play in our basement, so like I had that exposure to like bands and people's basements playing. And, and I your, really your mom was booking shows too, right? Or was that later? Yeah. So what happened is, is she was working at a bar and they were looking for someone to essentially do like, like what they call holding the calendar, which is like when, and we talked about this on my podcast with different people, somebody who has X amount of dates that they have to fill as part of their job for the club. And so because she was entwined in this metal scene and the dude she knew were from metal scene, there was a small venue called the Empire Rock Club, which is fucking famous, but so fucking small and way before my time. But out of the ashes of the Empire Rock Club was like the Northeast Philadelphia metal scene. I mean, a guy who would go on to play in one record for Motley Crue, John Karabi. He was from that group. He was like connected with my mom through her friends. Like all the, all the bands like Britney Fox and Cinderella were all like that stuff. But there was also thrash shit coming through. So my mom was booking all this stuff. And my mom also saw the value in us getting out of the neighborhood once it's really bizarre, but there's like a moment where like, it goes from being everybody can kind of have this weird sort of long hair, but not really long hair. Kids are wearing denim. You might see ACDC and Kiss t-shirts. And I just remember overnight, everybody is wearing like goofy ass clothes. I remember uh, like not so much when House, House of Pain was Irish, so my whole neighborhood liked it. But I just remember when all the kids who were like parents were listening to Bruce Springsteen and shit all their kids started being like white kids who were listening to rap. And I'm like, we already listened to all that where we were at. And I was kind of like, wait, what the fuck is changing? Everyone's changing. Wait, 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 wait. And not soon after that, there was like the first 
you couldn't really because also I was getting older too, which is probably another thing that just happened to come sync like sync up at the same time. So you could travel further off the block, you could go in different parts of the neighborhood. But that's when all the street gang shit started really popping up. So my mom kind of told me and my friends because we were long hair kids in the heavy metal, starting to play Dungeons and Dragons because my older cousin used to babysit me. And when his friends would play Dungeons and Dragons, we watched Heavy Bangers Ball, which was like a whole other huge exposure thing, just to be exposed to all this music every Saturday night. And uh, my mom was like, you got to get out of the neighborhood. I don't care. Go to that. You know, like South Street in Philadelphia was at the time amazing. There was tons of record stores, flyers for days, punk people all over, like Harry Christian was running down the street. It was very vibrant. I won't say... I wouldn't even let it be compared close to hate Asbury because it was far from that, but it wasn't unlike the Berkeley, the Berkeley street telegraph. where, uh, yeah, where telegraph is more like, was more like what South street looked like. Okay. Yeah. Totally. Like the Philadelphia version of telegraph. Like a like and, the um, cultural hub in your area. Kind of like it, not even my area, just like for all Philly. Like there was a song that said South street, South street. That's where all the hippies meet. It makes me think and of was, fear. Well, that's exactly because Lee Ving's from a neighborhood yeah. that we're from. And he says, walk South Street, Philadelphia. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. because that was like the shit back then. And Love Hall, which I like, did shows in the very early 80s, wasn't far from South Street, so it was attached. But um, having a mother who was young and into music allowed me the permission, which is, sounds super weird to talk about it now, but it's like, permission's a big fucking deal when you're a kid. So getting the permission to go downtown and getting the permission to go on a bus with friends to all ages death metal shows in the early nineties really changed my entire life. And if she was, if my life was any bit more normal with parent wise and like living situation was none of this shit would have happened. But I just got lucky that at a bizarrely young age, now that I think about it, I was going to see death metal. So shows you would have been like 12, 13. Not even at that. I got exposed to metal shows, like first rock concerts. Like I was going to rock concerts eight, nine, ten. Wow! The minute ten came, and you, you were born in nineteen eighty or eighty. Okay, yep, I'm, 80. I'm eighty two, so we're we're more or less the same age. But yeah, yeah. And then like, dude, when you start talking about like the the real crest, like the precipice of you can't, you can't, you can't. I can't understate enough to you. The uh, the importance of this fucking tour that came down to Philadelphia when I was like a kid, like I'll never forget it was fucking Clash of the Titans tour. Like if that motherfucker never happened in Philadelphia, so tell the people who was on that tour, dude. <laughs> what's crazy is, and and I don't know, I don't know why, I don't even, I guess I'll say is. I don't even know why more people don't jack this up, but dude, this was the clash of the Titans. I like that. I'll never forget. You know how like every metal band had their own helmet and share their own face. This was like fucking Slayer and Megadeth. Yeah. And, and, who, um, and who opened? Well, so that's the whole thing is <laughs> I know this is a, well, that's the whole thing is the fucking clash of Titans. The first one was Megadeth Slayer. Uh, I know um, Anthrax was on it. 
But Allison Chains opened and got yeah. booed the fuck off the yeah, stage. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So that's the one you were at, right? Yeah, that's like for me, like. That and then, and like, then, like the next year, they fucking blew the fuck up, and they were all over MTV and everything. Well, well, so without that tour, and that was like a week before I turned eleven. That was it. You know, it was it. Like I was eleven years old, wearing either Megadeth, Anthrax, Overkill, Slayer. You know, um, I had a shit ton of Metallica shirts. Like I was, I was like the fucking poster boy for long hair, bandana, concert t-shirt. You know, um, my mom didn't have a lot of money, so like going to the Army Navy store just for regular clothes was a thing. Mm-hmm. P- you know, pre grunge when everyone went there. So like, you know, Army surplus stuff looked cool and people were wearing it. You know, Motorhead shit like because of Jim, I really got into Motorhead as well. And then, like, you know, he was showing me, like, even shit like Sodom and stuff was starting to be, like, on my radar. And that's a fucking weird thing to be, like, 10 turning 11. And this was, like, my world was, like, getting tapes. Because you're uh, still in elementary school. Like, you're, like, a yeah, yeah, yeah. fifth grader or something at this point. Yeah, and but that's, like, any picture from the time I was, like, fifth, sixth, fifth, sixth seventh, eighth, I was, a long, I was, like, straight, like, the headbanger. In fact... The black kids would call me Dusty Joe. Because of my hair. Oh, that hair is Dusty. Dusty Joe. Oh, look at that Dusty over there. And what always went up my ass was the white kids who were trying to maintain their cool points by getting into whatever the the breaking hip-hop of the time is. Were pretty fucking rude about the whole thing, to be completely honest with you. (laughs) And then I'll never forget when I get into early high school, all of a sudden all these dickheads... um, Right before I get into high school, a black album comes out. And then all these dickheads immediately become like Metallica fans. And they're like, yeah, what's up, bro? And I'm like, fuck you. Fucking jerk offs. But um, at that time, my entire life revolved around like that kind of heavy metal music, going to South Street, and then exposure to these punk patches and these fucking stickers all over. All this different stuff just completely just showed me like it's not just metal, it's punk, it's this, it's that, and then it just kept going further and further, you know. So, what was your uh, what was the bridge to hardcore from metal? I think the first step in that in that like um, would have to be Headbangers Ball, and um, also at that time. Right after two, yeah, you know what? That would make sense. My mom started putting herself through college. And when she was doing that, it wasn't like um, she met a guy from Canada and she's like, oh, yeah, my son's in the blah, blah, blah. Anyone who's ever met my mother ever, 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 ever will know that she talks about me. And, you know, like and I love her for it. But, you know, if you ran into my mom, she's going to tell you she's my mom. And I love her for it. But she talks, and next thing you know, I get this cassette tape, and it's got some some carnivore. It's got Agnostic Front Live at CBGB. Dude, this was like, what the fuck? And I remember specifically, he had some Chromags on there, and my head was like, Age of Coral, right? Just some songs, like 
you know, like a handful of songs on the B side. Cause it was like back when he was like, you know, Oh, you're into this. And then he wrote me a list of other bands to check out. And That's it's so, so weird. Sick. Like what's weird is like, obviously like SNFU and like Dago abortions, which is like such a Canadian thing. Yeah, that was in there. Definitely. <laughs> so like, Canadian. But you know, when this shit happens, um, when this shit gets into my head, I'm like, fuck. And it was right around the time when, uh, I, I had older friends. Now I'm not fucking with that part of the neighborhood. We started going on the other side of the tracks, which is great. Cause biohazard came out and you all into the wrong side of the tracks, John. And then we see biohazard with house of pain. We see Pantera a couple of times, you know, we knew what Sepultura was. We were in the heavier shit now. And then we started fucking with some of the hardcore stuff and people like legitimately, it was weird. Like I was immediately gravitated, you know, like immediately gravitated. Like this is fucking it. And, um, I'll never forget seeing, um, you gotta understand South street. You couldn't go down there and someone not give you a flyer. Does that yeah. make sense? No, totally. Like if you were walk and, and that was a, you know, later on when we talk about shows and stuff, that's how I operated for a long time. You know, like, I would just go to South Street and give out flyers. Fuck all this posted on the Instagram shit. <laughs> what the fuck would I do that for? I don't need to do that. No, totally. You know I, mean? I mean, that's just, that's how it was. I mean, we talked about it. Um, well, you'll hear it when it comes out, but we talked about something out here back when, and it's actually still going. There's this guy, Steve, he makes something called the list and it's literally, Yo, I actually wiped my ass <laughs> with a list the first time I had to use the bathroom at Gilman. At Gilman Street? Up there. Oh, poor guy. And I literally didn't know there wasn't toilet paper, so that's yeah. what I used. But I have saved copies of whatever local list was out yeah. every time we came through. So I'm, I'm pretty well pretty well versed on it. And I'm going to tell you, how cool is that 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 fucker does that? Oh, it's amazing. Like, seriously, like when I was a kid in high school, like – whatever. Like I said, this will come out on another episode I did with somebody. So I don't want to say too much, but we would just be in class, like with a highlighter, just like, we're going to this show. We're going to this show. We're going to, you would figure out your whole fucking summer or whatever. You know what I mean? And it was like, that guy was like a lifeline pre-internet. Like you knew where to go, who was playing, like how much it was, like how much it costs, like all of it, all ages, all of it. So I mean, in a pre-internet world, it was absolutely crucial to the barrier scene. Yeah, well, so that's the thing is, is so we're on South Street. You guys didn't um, have anything like that in Philly, though, right? Like a collective flyer that had just like all the shows that no, month or anything. We, because there was there was a couple things that we had, but they they were never they were never put onto one thing because we've always had a combination of independent promoters who worked out of different rooms. We had specific buildings that had their own shows and their own calendar. And then we had halls. We had halls in the suburbs for days. We had small clubs that might randomly, someone might do a show. There was still house shows. And then there was the Philly suburbs, the Jersey suburbs. There was Delaware, there's so much going on and and pre-internet it was hard to even track it you know yeah. it's hard to track all that if that makes sense right no oh, totally there so there was plenty going on but just not really a way to consolidate the information yeah so like yo you could totally fucking miss 
you could totally fucking miss a show pretty fucking quick just because you didn't get that flyer that day. Yeah. Um, so I'll never forget being like, yo, biohazard is playing on South street with a band called sick of it all. And then we're like, yo, that's like just the name sick of it. all." fuck. And sheer terror was on that. Right. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Sheer terror opened. And that was April of 93. And I, wow. so I was 12, I was 12 turning 13 at that show. And all my friends were two to three years older than me at that point, you know? So they were already in high school and I was in my last, I was actually in eighth grade at that time. And like the shades of gray video and all that stuff is out already. Like it's, it's on head, headbangers ball. You'd well, see that, the because of headbangers ball, because the headbangers ball, that was it. Yeah, because you know? Biohazard did and, so much for heavy music and hardcore music in the early 90s, like as far as bringing people and like just getting the attention, like um, to, you know, just kids in the suburbs well, you, and you everything. Gotta, you, know? you gotta remember is, is Biohazard was out like the year or so before. I, I like, like that was the whole thing. I, I, if there was no Headbangers Ball, there was no Biohazard. No, definitely. Definitely for me, like, and, and, and like, I don't know, there was to be never, there would be no biohazard, there'd be no chromags. I feel know, like, se- I mean, Sepultura is a metal band, but I think they were kind of like, I put that in, them in that kind of lane too, you know, like just the groove metal kind of era, like Machine Head, Biohazard. There was like well, a so, lot of like, there was a lot of killer stuff going on back then. Also, like, specifically, um, that Columbia House tape thing really changed a lot of stuff for us too. No, definitely. I had that also. BMG. And so like, yeah. So like, you we got all these tapes, and and then, you know what? You would just get shit of me, like it, you give it to someone else, yada yada yada. And again, like, it's a weird thing to say to someone. Like, yeah, I went to my first hardcore show at twelve years old. What the fuck else was I gonna do? Sit in the neighborhood and wait till I started getting in trouble? Like, I was already in trouble all the fucking time for wearing shirts that had like middle fingers on them for having devil shit on them. And then, you know, it's a, it's not a woe is me thing. Cause I don't give a fuck, but like the minute hip hop started being a very popular thing, culturally someone signed up for being like, yeah, if you're not into this then fuck you. Yeah. And dude, I'm, I was fighting more I, like, you know, I, I did fight my share of black kids. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, I, a, you're a white metal kid growing up in a rough neighborhood in the inner city. Yeah, so, so I'm I, sure you I, didn't so have, a, a, it wasn't I a cakewalk. A, well, you know, it, it was, it was weird. Like the first time I had like, like, uh, you know, it's funny. At first, the black girls were kind of funny because they would just hit you with the jump rope. If you didn't do double Dutch with them, <laughs> I think they were just kind of flirting with you. Like, Oh, you know, you get hit with a jump rope or whatever, but I'll never forget somebody pulling my hair while I was sitting down at a table. And I think because I was the person who was in like the quote unquote nerd MGP class. So I was only in normal kid class, like two, three days a week. And with them, the rest of the time, they thought I was a bitch. So I had to start fighting all the time. And that really changed. I would say that in tandem with like the exploration of new music really changed my entire disposition to, to people, to life. And, and you, so, you had the perfect soundtrack for that aggression too. So Oh, it was all that. And then you got to remember is the guys that I'm friends with, they live on the other side of the tracks and that neighborhood was 
way less white. And those guys were the last ones that lived in the neighborhood from that. Um, it was super funny because we linked up because we we're all like into the same shit. And we were all playing Dungeons and Dragons. We were all sitting in the fucking, we're all sitting in our friend's basement, you know, doing whatever or going to concerts. But at a certain point, and it, and it wasn't too soon. It was actually the following year. It was um, the Dog Eat Dog Downset Tour that it kind of changed who was still trying to go on the um, who was really still trying to do tours. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Uh, just and, uh, just a little side, whatever. It's insane yeah. how big Dog Eat Dog was back then. And like, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to. I don't want to be disrespectful. I don't know if they aged well. But Doggy Dog was fucking massive, and especially in Europe. Like, if you see that Dynamo, have you seen that before? That '95 Dynamo Doggy Dog set. Well, that's the whole. Well, that's the looks whole like thing Woodstock. About it. Like it's crazy. Well, so that's what I'm saying. That's the crazy shit about this whole thing. Um, that was that was all over the record stores and shit that we had because of the fact that we had um, what do you call it? We had the fucking tower. We had tower books. Yeah, I used to work at we Tower. Had, so all them roadrunners. They're based things, out of California, came, but go ahead, sorry. No, no, um, all of those all of those things came out at the same time. Mm-hmm. All of those like we got into Roadrunner and that was it. It was like life agony. You know, like if it was something that happened, like you know, like legit, like Yeah, like Ro- we Roadrunner ninety two to ninety four five or so was killer you know well and so that's because of being downtown and because of all the stuff dude that became the deal like that became the fucking you know that became the deal for us and um i it was january 94 doggy dog downset man ball and a and a delaware band from our neighborhood hard response uh well they're from philly uh, but they're delaware dudes but all the dudes are old school philly guys that makes sense the uh-huh. delaware guys were connected to the philly guys who were bad luck 13 okay so hard response ipso facto was a philly thing that's why they're on that comp so that that's crew. the pre bad luck 13 band is hard response no i there's they're other bands. Of? there's yeah there's me- not members of but just like that's the homeboys you know okay that's the people who that's the people who are uh, connected, I'd say, if anything. And where, so, where you starting? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. So that show with J.C. Dobbs, that's not a big concert hall. That's a fucking bar, basically. A bar with the stage, people stage diving, fights. I got a fucking concussion from Kev One. You know, like, to me... Like, welcome to hardcore. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, uh, it's... And I, and I noticed that that was the moment. That was the moment when shit changed, you know. Uh, like that was like when you really grabbed onto it, or just yeah, like I grabbed onto it. it. I grabbed onto it more so than home. that Biohazard show with uh, Sigvidal. Was that? I said more was, more so well, than. 12, the- I was I was twelve then, so you got to figure I'm thirteen, turning fourteen. Going down with the boys, we're going to go to a real hardcore show in a small place. Gotcha. You know, like yeah. And, and 
you're kind of what? starting to figure figure more stuff out and like kind of like and so what happened is is again if you everything comes from the l it's like a river in itself mm-hmm. so we're going to anything you like literally anything that you guys can think of that was coming out we were going to this place called the trocadero we're going to south street we're linking up and you know you're on the train and you're looking at this motherfucker and you're like hold up hold up who's this dude giving us this look like and you're like oh wait he's wearing this shirt next thing you know we're homeboys yeah you, you know what i mean friends. like yeah that became that's that's everything you know like then you're like, oh were you in this and the next thing you know is it wasn't three of us. It was like 25 of us. And then it wasn't 25 of us. It was so many more. And so, um, it was a really interesting, it really was an interesting time to be honest with you. Cause there was so much crazy music. Like obviously you could look at the, the stuff, like for instance, the quickstand stuff was really blowing up. Uh, I always felt more comfortable when they started doing 120 minutes being into the quicksand stuff than like mm-hmm. the actual, like the actual grunge shit. The grunge shit could miss me with all that because I remember being like a metal kid and no one, no one had my back. No one even wanted to talk to me, right? No one even wanted to talk to me about music. They're kind of like, oh, this is a fucking weirdo, yada, yada, yada. And then, Two years later, everybody's in their Nirvana, and you're like, "Bro, really? We're doing this? Like now, <laughs> now, 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 you're all in on on looking like a weirdo." And, and it was like, to me, it was also soft. Yeah, the whole situation was soft. Well, and you're already going to see fucking Biohazard and you know, sheer well, not terror. Only that so. is, not only that is, I was also seeing Cannibal Corpse, Obituary, Suffocation. Yeah, so you, you had know, like you had some legit exposure to like real heavy music. Yeah, and like when I it's funny, it's like the cell block was about the same size as the Manball show, the Manball Downset Doggy Dog show. Mm-hmm. But the fact remains, um, nothing, nothing <laughs> like a death metal show was kind of peaceful, you know. Besides crazy Nazis that were there, Sig Heiling, the Manball show, you could get beat the fuck up by a grown ass man with a beard. <laughs> yeah. Like, like we weren't wearing like we were I was still at the I, and I guess I guess when you're eleven and twelve and thirteen, I guess the metal people aren't like, let's kick this little kid's ass, you know? But um I what I was getting to is like we were going to Guar shows, we were going to a ton of stuff. The Trocadero started really picking up speed when the city gardens stopped having shows as much. And when city gardens Stop doing hard. That was in shit. That, that was in Trenton, right? Trenton. That was in Jersey. Yeah, which is yeah, and that's like thirty miles away. But if you didn't have a ride, you didn't go. So like, yeah. I missed out. I remember being on South Street and then being like, "Yo, you're gonna shelter?" And I'm like, "Nah, I got a ride, man." You know, it's a Sunday. No, not my, that ain't gonna work. And then I came home, hung out with South Street the next day, and dude, I thought they were fucking with me. Um. I really thought they were I fuck with me. They're like, dude, you today played. And that broke my heart. It fucking broke my heart that I didn't just see and that. And that you'd missed it. Yeah. Well, I made up for it. We we got the we got the reunion of it. Yeah, I mean that that's something I definitely am gonna touch on like later in the interview. But yeah, you're but, personally responsible for getting the bands together that 
probably most of us were like, yeah, they're ne- they're never going to play. And then you pull it off. So, yeah. Well, so, <laughs> well, so for me specifically, the issue is like my friends who were there to be metal people didn't like the active nature of like, you could be a metal fan or a hardcore kid. And what's fucked up is I'm still a metal fan. I have a signed sword for Man of War. I have a signed flag for Man of War. I'm going to Baltimore to see Cradle of Filth in two months. Just play the records that I love by them guys. You know, like as a metal fan, you're a fan of records. You're a fan of the, sometimes you're a fan of the artists. Yeah. Like I've seen Danzig a million times. That same year that I'm finding hardcore and all this shit, we still saw Metallica's uh, dancing, suicidal tendencies, all at a big show. Like we were going to a lot of concerts, but concerts and shows are different. And for some reason, and I, and I never understood. Maybe it was just a, a youthful perspective, but a metal concert, big or small, felt like a metal concert. When you go to a hardcore show, the dude from Obituary wasn't selling the Obituary slowly reroute T-shirt that I wore out. And that's the first year I got it. You understand? Mm-hmm. I mean, so, it like, was a level, it's more of a level playing field of like, you could talk to the bands and, you know, well, hang, so hang out or all of it. And again, I'm a lost kid. I don't got no dad. The relationship that my mom had with the guy who brought me all that was falling apart. I knew off the rip high school was going to be ass. Um, I never went to church and my mom started making us go to CDC, which is like a Catholic primer. So you get all your, um, all your things in case you want to go to Catholic school. Yeah. And I was telling my mom, I'm not cutting my fucking hair. Like, fuck you. Like, I'm like, I don't care. I'm not cutting my fucking hair. And I think she was dealing with the ramifications of having a crazy son, her having like a full ass life. And was kind of like, all right, whatever you want to do, like, fuck it. So like, I'm I'm in high school in '94, rolling into '95 downtown, and I'm exposed. I, I'm never coming back. You know what I mean? Like I'm never coming back. Yeah. My first year, my, I went to I, I to, um I didn't go to the neighborhood school to play soccer. I went to some downtown school and spent the whole time hanging downtown, getting flyers, meeting people, and then as a longtime reader. <laughs> since I was a kid, the minute I got my hand on fanzines, done, done. Then I'm just acquiring information and I'm building up like, like just like building a whole fucking reservoir of like bands. I want to check out bands. I want to listen to. Do you remember the first fanzine that you got? Like um, maximum rock and roll or a, something? Or No, the first, if I'm being honest without being punk rock, there was a lot of local stuff, like these little mags I called like the rock pile and shit like that. Yeah. And there was an East coast one. I forget the fucking name, but it was like in every single rock club there was. And, um, I'm trying to remember the fucking name of that. That's probably the first thing I legitimately read. And then South street just had flyers in piles like of old shows the guys would take them off the billboard and just sit them down so you get them and you just pick up piles of things but i remember slug and lettuce early on i remember the first time i read a maximum rock and roll and then 
I remember hanging out with people who were like way further along at hardcore through Steve Bush, who's like one of my longest running friends. And them guys knew everything. They were older. They're in bands. And their zine collection was out of control. That had like everything. Like they had old boiling point shit. They had fucking everything. Hardware fanzine, which I, I have the fucking anthology of that. I love it. Like there's so many things that just I started getting exposed to. And it was like, it was like kind of like when Neo first comes out of the Matrix. And he's got to learn everything. That's how I was. <laughs> and I was just obsessed with learning as much as I could about everything, you know? So you're, uh, you're like fully immersed in the hardcore scene at this point. Like, are you, you're, you're meeting. Well, guys- so that's the, so that's the juxtaposition as a kid, like, you know, freshman in high school, I'm like, I fucking love hardcore. I had goofy long hair. I dressed like a total herb. Um, that same year, corn broke. We still, all, the whole hardcore, like all the punks and hardcore kids from our neighborhood, we all went to corn. It was corn headlining with Sugar Ray in the middle and Lords of Brooklyn opening. That's um, random. We saw Deftones open for Civ that summer or that that winter. That winter, that summer was the Warp Tour. Mm-hmm. So uh, summer 95. 95? Yeah. You know, like, like, I that warp tour about. was pretty stacked too. Like that was oh, quicksand. Like you you're talking you, about quicksand. You're talking about L seven, orange nine, uh, subline. Oh, yeah, well, that's a, there was a hardcore stuff, but there was also just like a weird. I tell everybody because I've no been doubt was on that. Sublime was on that. Fluff was on that. Um, Sublime was on that. Yeah, Sub- yeah. I think three like three eleven might have been also. Um, I forget. Well, but, so like so all these bands that we're talking about here, we were still seeing all them. So like. You know, like my, you know, especially because I was a younger dude, I wasn't that dialed in. Like I only listened to hardcore at that point. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, I remember going to see Marilyn Manson. I remember seeing like. Well, that was we just went- the era too. I mean, I think people of our generation, we were we were probably listening to hip hop, metal, hardcore, rock, alternative, like a little like probably mighty 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 boss tones or something. You know what I mean? Like a little bits and pieces of everything. You know, because we didn't have the the luxury of being like immaculate hardcore kids you know like we weren't well, that, born into exactly this. it like our, so like for for instance there was a saturday night or saturday matinee show where it was 25 to life fury of five next step up dysphoria that's a at the same girl. place i see the same place i seen uh the man ball show right <laughs> and that night was h2o and uh, money money ball stones you know, and so like there was always exposure to all that shit. You know, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, like uh, we're all boys. There's not a lot of girls around. And you want to see punk rock girls? You go to ska shows. Oh wait, ska's having its third wave explosion. Yeah, and uh, Sean Agnew, who would become one of the greatest promoters and later my mentor, when he started booking a lot of ska shows in the church. So yeah, we're at ska shows in the church. Ska shows in the truck. If there was something going on, it could be ska, it could be metal, it could be fucking Lord's Asset. <laughs> like, we're there. We were just doing You just want to be doing something. Just get out of the neighborhood. Well, that exactly. It was getting out of the neighborhood. And it would take a little bit more for me to, like, hone and finally tune my, my senses and my 
seen points and cashed them all in and shaved my head and become like fully a hardcore dude, which is why the moniker Joe Hardcore came early because I was even more fast talking, more hyper aggressive and like just like a million miles an hour. And I did it like. How old were you when you first got that nickname? Uh, 94 the summer of so i was either thir- i was probably 13 turn 14 okay wow and do you remember so, who the, the first guy that said that to you it was a tongue-in-cheek joke made up by a friend not made to like be nice but like kind of be like oh that's fucking joe it was, it was a dig there. yeah he was talking but, shit but um it's because this band tribe 13 which is from here um they had a song called joe hardcore and it was like a, it was like a, it was a diss, but like someone was like, oh yeah, Joe Hardcore. I'm like, wait, what? And like, oh, that's what they're calling you now. And I'm like, really? I thought it was the coolest thing. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. That's great. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> and then someone would be like, no, they're like making funny. I'm like, I don't care. I think it's cool. <laughs> and that was it. Done. Awesome. So and this- then, um, where are you at? I was just going to say this would have been about uh, we're at 94, 95 at this point, correct? Yeah. Okay. So we start linking up with different people. Next thing you know is I'm playing bass in a band that no one knows, which will keep the name out of this. Cause it's oh, that's one thing it. that I wanted to ask you, but okay. I'll let you keep uh, that it's, one. <laughs> it, you know, it's just like, it's not even like. Can I guess? There, no, there's no way. There's no way in fucking hell no one would know what it is. All right. Well, I'm just going to say a name, and then if, yeah. if it's not the right name, but this isn't this isn't even a band I've ever heard, but I just heard the name, and I was like, damn, that's a hard name. But uh, Freight Train. No, that came later, but I oh. played bass at a reunion show on that. Okay. Okay. So I'm not totally uh, off the mark with that. No, no, you're not off the market, but I, we actually had a hard name, but we were terrible. We were fucking god-awful. <laughs> <laughs> but... That so that summer that it was John, like busting my balls calling me Joe Hardcore. Now mind you, these are different neighborhood kids who are like half skinhead, half bro dudes, like drunk maniacs, and they were in this thing called Junietta Brew Crew, and that's the name of the neighborhood, Junietta. And so then there was the Junietta Brew Crew, the JBC, and then there was the FSU because Mark from Intoxicated and Ryan from Intoxicated started a band. They called it, or they were in another band for them, but then they called it Intoxicated. Um, and just to clarify for the dipshits that don't know the difference, we're not talking about that FSU. <laughs> well, so so here's the thing is, is when we were 15 years old, we're like, yeah, FSU, JBC, motherfucker. And then we go down to a church show that had 454 Big Block, and we see real FSU dudes, and we're like, wait, what? <laughs> and obviously, because we all came from neighborhoods where people broke graffiti and had crews, but like, oh, I guess we can't call that. I guess someone came up with thought of that already, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. Was uh, was, was Ninth Circle was a thing yet? Yeah, no. So that's a that's like what I was saying earlier about that generational thing. So in Philadelphia, there are people in Philadelphia who move here. Philadelphians, true residents, born, bred lived in the neighborhoods or lived maybe in the fucking the, the some of the nice spots. There's something different about us. And you're either in you, like you can live fucking five blocks outside the city, you ain't you're not a city person to us. And so um for me specifically when I think about Philly, it was my, like my group of kids 
we came down from the neighborhoods to a hardcore scene where some of the people were from South Philly. A lot of the people lived in the suburbs, but were adults going to college. And so they like became like the Philly hardcore scene. A bunch of people were here from New Jersey and we couldn't tell everyone's tattooed. Some people, I mean, I always say the same thing. If you had a beard and I was like a teenager, I thought you were like a fucking, like a, like a sailor, like an old man. Yeah. Totally. Like, he's got a fucking beard. So for me, I, um, it took a minute to realize like, Oh wait, some of these motherfuckers just dress and have tattoos and they're full pussy. And we started coming down like 20, 30, 40 deep. Like, uh, there was a show. It was supposed to be quicksand, Civ, Deftones. Quicksand broke up. So Civ headlined. It was the fall after, it was the fall after the first warp tour. So it was 95. Yeah. Okay. And we, the whole neighborhood goes out and we ended up in a fight with like, Bunch of these like skateboarding graffiti writing. Uh, one of these dickheads was in this band, that Krishna band Prima. Like we got into an argument slash fight with what would be like the prima donna side of Philly hardcore, and they're calling us Nazis, and we're like, we ain't fucking Nazis, motherfucker. We're from the neighborhood. Like we'll come fucking fuck you up. And it was a whole gimmick, and they thought they got slick. We got down to the end of the corner, then the cops showed up and they start talking about shit. So. Uh, a bunch of the older boys caught a couple of them dudes and in a typical fashion for Philadelphia, the the more dominant side, which was our friends were like, yo, we're going to fuck you up. And they're like, no, no, it's all cool. Let's squash it. And that was like a true entrance for a couple of the older guys to be like, we're cool and hardcore, you know? Well, gotcha. <laughs> you know, like just in hardcore, I had like the plus one, like Bushy and a couple of the older dudes who were already in their late teens, you know, um, um, them guys knowing the dudes eventually linked up with the ba- the guys who would start Bad Luck at that time and all that shit. Like, they were in this band Snail Trail, which was like a precursor to Bad Luck. <clears throat> and, like, them dudes were legit, but they weren't dickheads to us, you know? Like, they were never dickheads to us. And, like, they, you know, like, I went from knowing a little bit about punk rock to basically being told like, Oh, you don't like, you know, you don't listen to fucking the meat men. You don't listen, you know, like the mentors, like they school, they fucking... schooled you guys. Oh, I think they school everybody, but the, the people that ask questions got answers, you know? Gotcha. And so, um, well, they, pro- they, they probably like, saw something in you, you guys that was like, Oh, they're like us, you know, I'm guessing. Well, I think, I think half it was that we were just fucking crazy. And again, I think at that time, the people who were crazy kind of like started to stand out. And like, I mean, when Snail Trail played with Inga Dagger, they fucking threw meat into the crowd of vegans and Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's my kind of hardcore. I think it's yeah. fucking great. I hope a band does that. Stuff now. like that you never know. happens today. I mean, no, yeah. but like, that's like, that's our, that's our whole, that's our old heads, you know, like that's our voice, you know? And so, it's crazy now to think that them guys are now all turning 50 and i remember like now thinking about it like when i met them they were you know shit they were you know they were turning 23 24 you know like i know they're oldest guys in hardcore you know <laughs> but what i'm saying is is our neighborhood friends had bands and we would play our own shows we had our own shows at a this small place called the friends which is like where i first started understanding how to promote shows um, the friends had a couple shows that weren't good and we were there and we're like, well, Maximum Penalty played, we're like, man, we could bring more people than this. 
and they gave us a bunch of tickets and we all kind of linked up. I'm like, all right, you know, you're going to get your band. I'm going to get my band. And we started playing the forens. So like, you know how in a hardcore scene, there's like these random younger kids that are doing their own thing. That's kind of what we did. And we were kind of seeing it's like, oh, yeah, that, look at them guys. But it's like, yo, motherfucker, we grew up in the city. We come down here on the train to go to the fucking shows. And then on top of it, we're the assholes who are, you know, buying T-shirts and supporting your fucking shows. So specifically, I don't know why they were shitting on us early on. You know what I mean? No, totally. Well, I mean, it sounds like they were just trying to cool guy you kids. And well, then so, so you kind of took it and to... made it yours, you know? Well, so that's the whole gimmick is we kind of... You know, like, 95, we're like little kids. Uh, you know, like, oh, these guys are a pain in the ass. 96, oh, there's more of us, and we're starting to be a problem. You know, like, we're getting into more fights. Our bands are starting to play more shows. Shit's getting out of control. 97, um, I'll never forget it. Um, H2O plays the church. A friend of mine's girlfriend steals merch from H2O, which is super weird. And he's like telling Toby, like, dude, I'll give you the merch back. She's a dumb bitch. And Isaac runs over and punches my friend in the face. If you talk to people in Philadelphia hardcore who were like the cool guys, they're like, yo, remember that time Isaac punched that guy? Well, the other way the story is like, hey, remember that time a 23-year-old Isaac punched a 17-year-old kid? And I'll never forget that because we were all younger. We're like, oh, cool. You punched our friend. And it wasn't like fuck DMS. We were looking at fuck these all these uh, Philly hardcore kids who are trying to be like, oh yeah. And I remember I'll never forget because the two dudes who were talking shit are both Edge uh, broke Edge. And they're very mm-hmm. well known in hardcore, so I'll leave their names out because I like them. Uh-huh. But I'll never forget they're like, that's what these guys get for drinking on a friend's show. And it's like, oh yeah, how cool we'll remember this shit. <laughs> and that was that was March of '97. So there was a ton of crews. There was the Bad Luck guys. They had their own thing. And we like hung with those guys, but in our neighborhood, everyone was writing graffiti. Everybody had their own names. And you gotta remember every L stop at the time, we still didn't have the buff yet. So you could ride the L, and that was a huge part of being in high school at this time, is riding the L just to fucking look at all the pieces, big straight letters, big fucking productions. I mean Definitely. Um, well, and, uh, riding any forget. version of the bus or the sub, like if you're into graffiti and you ride the subway or the bus or any version of that, like that's like graffiti porn. You know what I, I mean? It's to, like, well, so the city is broken up in half from like downtown. You go all the way west. I used to some there would be some days I was bored before I'd go home. I would take it all the way in the opposite direction just to see all the west roofs. And then come back down before it goes underground under the city and then back up to our neighborhood just so I could see more roofs, see who's up. And so, like, in northeast Philly, which is, like, still a part of the city, but, you know, if you talk to downtown people who never lived in the city, like, oh, that northeast is even in Philly. There was a lot of little neighborhoods with a little bunch of punk rock dudes or a little bunch of skinheads. Like, my boys were in a crew called Philly Boot Boys. When we ran into them, we're like – you guys are like South American, but you're Nazis. And they're like, well, yeah, there was Nazis in Argentina. And we're like, what? What are the fuck are these dudes talking about? You know, like, that doesn't make sense. And if you went to one of our shows, you might see like long hairs and punk rockers and skinheads and weird assholes. And it was just the weirdest hodgepodge at that time. But little by little, we were all starting to gravitate as a whole entire area to go down to these other shows. And so 
some of the older guys started getting more rep. Like uh, my boy Diego, who sings in Freight Train, he was very well known. He's a bigger, giant skinhead dude for fucking people up. And he stopped being a Nazi. And people were like, oh, wait, that guy's not a Nazi? And him and his cousin, who's dead now, Max, the guy who played in Eating Alive, he played in a lot of bands. They were older, so they got popular with the downtown people. And so there was a hardcore crew here called Stackhouse that was still around, but not like a violent crew as much as like a friend crew. And so dudes were trying to start this thing called Ninth Circle, which is a friend past came up with the idea as like a graffiti thing. And it kind of got co-opted into like a if you're a bike messenger, graffiti writer, hardcore kid, whatever you were, you could probably get in it if you're into getting to some shit. And so that, that so it was just off. pretty much kids who were just down to fight and scrap, pretty much. See, because it's graffiti, you know the deal. Like they're yeah. half the nine circle fighters, uh, half the nine circle writers couldn't fight. Yeah. So we were fighting for that. Yeah. That's that's usually how it goes in any crew. There's like there's a handful of dudes that they're not really about it, and then there might be just even a couple guys that they're like they don't even write like they're not even good writers, but they're just there to fight, pretty much. That's what that's that's put me in that category. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate. But, you know, towards the end, I would literally just seriously write Joski Bop. <laughs> just, just like tall shit. Joski Bop. And if you ever had a whole run, I might go Joski Bop Wonder. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say Joe Wonder. <laughs> yeah, like just because the ski was always funny because yeah. that was like a neighborhood thing. And my mom wrote Patsky in like 1976. <laughs> And then there was dudes doing the bop, and just like it was kind of like more of a joke than anything. But I liked the fight. So by the time we're 17, 18, ah, uh, now, oh man, you neighborhood guys are a problem. However, the bad luck dudes and all were like, no, they're not a fucking problem. They're our fucking boys. At this time, I did my first show already. And then my second year of doing shows, like at the, at, in our neighborhood, I did the first bad luck show. What was the first show that you did? The very first show that I did of my own was all neighborhood bands that no one knows at a place called the the Unity Street Hall, which is down the street from where Bushy and all the Bush brothers grew up in their grandma's house. So, but I mean, it was literally like, I I probably have the flyer still, but it was literally like eight bands, all neighborhood people. But that thing changed the course for Philadelphia hardcore. And I mean, if there was not, if that show never happened, there never would have been a blacklisted. There probably never would have been a fucking band horror show or nothing. Like all these young guys, a couple years younger than me, this is some of their very, very first shows, you know, like, and so like I said, there was a weird, not downtown hardcore scene. That was all neighborhood shit. It was like weird church halls and local bands and we started doing these shows, you know, uh, November 1997. I had 500 kids seeing uh, 25 to Life and Overthrow from Long Island. Wow. And that changed everything. Wow. You know, like, um, yeah, we had, we brought Mushmouth down that first year. We had Burial Ground and One for One. We had a shit ton of bands called The Neighborhood. And they're like, what the fuck is this neighborhood? Were you, Why are uh, we here? were you guys buddies with the dysphoria dudes yet? Or had you met them? Yeah. Yet? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so going back to the death metal thing, when you dysphoria has such a cool legacy because 
them dudes weren't playing death metal shows. So like there was a small club called Dreams, which was like a titty bar, but they had shows and they had like death metal shows and like later they'd have all these just punk shows like some of the bands I'm talking about. But Dysphoria would be on a flyer for like a hardcore show and they would also be on a death metal show. So I'm like, wait, 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 what the fuck's up with this band? And if you hear their very first demo, you're like, yo, this shit is crazy sick. And so again, I don't have a lot to I don't have a lot of shame in what I say. Uh no one comes out of the womb in hardcore and is like mad cool and everyone loves them. No, nobody's born into this shit. I was a fucking ultimate young kid punisher to the nth degree. So the only thing is, is for some dumb reason, Chris Disworia and Todd kind of like, oh, this kid's crazy, but he's cool. So Chris kind of was trying to do a show with Chris was trying to do a show at Ferenz. The guy, Mike, who was doing the shows at Friends, were like, oh, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm thinking about doing Fury 5 and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, hey, uh, you should put this band, Blank, which is my band, on there. They bring a lot of tickets because, I mean, they would hope that a four-band show would sell at least 60 tickets and then people would pay at the door. And we were able to sell 40 of our own tickets, like these little Monopoly card-style things. Mm. And so... I would. I saw Dysphoria a bunch of times, and I think in passing I might have really like, hey, you know, blah blah blah. They kind of like a fucking Punisher, but it was at that show when we played with them when they're like, hey, what's up? And, and they always tease me, and they're like, the first thing we remember is you walking up, being like, hey, this is my band's last show. We fucking suck. Don't worry, I'm gonna start another band. And that's literally what I told Dysphoria like when we played that night with them, and that was like. Trying to do the math here. That was late '96 when I told them, like, I'm, yeah, I'm getting this new band going. And then in 1996, I in the summertime, I was told I was going to be a dad. And I'm like, 15 turning 16. Like, wait, what? And so my whole life was kind of like, oh fuck, what yeah, am I going to do? The rug pulled out from under you, kind of. Yeah, because you're you're just a kid yourself, and you're about to have a kid. So yeah, so I was like, oh, I guess I'll get out of high school. And like, there still was factories to work in, which is super funny to say now. Like now, some of them are lost and shit. So I'm like, fuck, do I go? In my head, I'm like, fuck, do I go work at a factory or something? Like, what is like, what is that? Like, you know, I don't know. Like, dad, he worked in a building. He was building commercial cabinets, and his brother had his own shop and were working commercial. And his other brother were working the commercial cabinets. This is like when office furniture wasn't made by like Ikea. Like when you still, these guys made a really good living this way. And so I was like, fuck, maybe we can do that. But my mom's friend hooked it up and I ended up working in the bowling alley. And um, one of my best friends, he got kicked out of his house. I got an apartment with my kid's mother because my mom hooked it up just to get us out of the fucking house. We lived over top of the bar that she worked at. So I'm paying rent and we'll have a job. And I don't want anything to do with any of this. I just want to be a hardcore kid. <laughs> you know, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. And um, so a lot of the story we talked about, you know, this is summer of 96. So, you know, like the whole, it, it was a lot of the stuff we just touched on has already happened. But for me, there was a minute where I felt like all this that I love is going to go away. And then I heard about AF doing the reunion and, and I was saying to my mom, like, dude, I can't believe Agnostic Front. And so God no, bless was that her, the got a, Wetlands, right? Yeah. And yeah. that was like, 
that was that was the one, man. That was the like she told me at Thanksgiving because we went to my mom's house for Thanksgiving. Was I said, like, yeah, you know, you guys are gonna go to. I got you and Carmen tickets to go to Agnostic Front, and I was like, this is it. Boom, shaved my head. Fuck yeah, Agnostic Front's back, and I'm thinking like in my head like. If Agnostic Front's back, like I'm back, you know. <laughs> now, mind you, at the time, a huge thing. Another thing that's I don't know people how, how how deep people all listen to in very regionally small bands, but my, one of my closest friends was a guy named Bob who did Gut Punch Records, which put out like local seven inches from some of our friends' bands. But there was a band from Jersey Burnside, which eventually they had a CD that would come out on one of the European labels and he traded with people like Mikey hoods and stuff. And so like, Bob, oh, are you talking about fish. gain ground records? The one that put out new book? No, no, not gain ground. Um, they're even smaller. I, I think it was, Oh, it was RPP. RPP? Power. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and so our friends Burnside were like, to me, like that's the biggest band we knew. Like, cause they were playing, like we went to Connecticut, we went to PA, we went to Maryland. Like if they played somewhere, we went. And then that seven inch is hard. That Burnside record. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the seven inch Bob put out. Was, uh, and so, were they related to, um, there was a band called like in, in rage. Were they connected? No. And rage is from Staten Island. Oh, okay. My bad. Go ahead. No. Um, so no, they were released. They were down with these bands. There was, um, it was the real deal, which is like uh, has a split with Spirit of '88 on back to big, back to basic records. Mm-hmm. It was the real deal. It was um, Burnside, and then we linked up with these crazier assholes from New Jersey. Their first band was called Ego Cage, and then they started a new band called Powered by Pride. Mm-hmm. And they were just—they're still some of my best boys, but just maniacs, like. Total country Jersey cowboy wild motherfuckers, <laughs> but their town was right near this thing called Brown's Mills, and so we all went to Brown's Mills with a small little coffee shop. You see, like we saw so many sick bands in this small ass place, like when Fury Five was coming up, you know, like all these bands. So like that's where I started getting exposed to the heavy shit, like the Fury Five, the Jersey style, and that's when I started seeing them guys mosh. Which we, you know, I know you wanted to talk about it, but yeah, like, definitely. That I was going to ask dudes, you about that. Them dudes being older, and them dudes going to North Jersey, and then me going to North Jersey exposed me to that. Philly didn't dance like that, so in Philly it didn't. Not that we weren't trying to dance, we just weren't good at it yet. And so, the first time you go to like a North Jersey or a Central Jersey, you start seeing this other shit. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And so what do you do? Oh, you're at your friend's house. You put on music, you're moshing. <laughs> oh, wait. Mosh. No, I'm talking about someone's fucking living room. Like, my mom at this point was this. I love her. And I know I don't think I don't know what she listens to. But, you know, she was the best mother that she could be. And she gave us a place to be in the house. So that way we weren't getting shot at. Because the whole time the neighborhoods are getting worse. And, like, my sister would, like, make fun of us. I'm like, yeah. Remember you guys would come over shows and put on music like hardcore music and mosh in our living room because that's what we would do. Mm-hmm. Like my mom's house was like a home base for so many people, and like obviously, it's, so many hardcore bands would come and stay at my mom's house even if I wasn't there. The Hoods would stay there for weeks at the end. Clenched fist. Um, 
unearthed, diecast. Dude, there's a, a figure four. There were so many people slept at my mom's house that all kind of like this is years later, but in the very beginning, you know, this is everything. This is where we linked up. This is where we would link up before shows. Everyone parked their cars. We're all going to go to meet at Joe's house. It's the clubhouse. It was literally a clubhouse, and later on, it'd be like the gang clubhouse. It was fucking <laughs> chaos. But so, um, without linking up with the Jersey guys, which also came from the Ferenc shows I was talking about, we never would have been as quickly exposed to that style of dancing. And when the first time we see it, we'd see it at the big truck shows, but it just wasn't super prevalent in Philly. And then when I left Philly and I'm going to CC's, I saw it. And then in Connecticut, I really saw it. And in fact, the only other time, and this is what made me start really starting to link shit. When Hatebreed first came down, there was one dude really doing that style. And we talked to him on the train because can I follow you guys? I don't know where the show is. First time Hatebreed came down, they came with 25 to life. And like no one was there. But I remember seeing that dude going off and being like, this dude's a fucking maniac. <laughs> and I liked it. Like, I like that. I like that chaos factor. So, and all these little baby shows in our neighborhood that I'm talking about, that's how we started getting good. Like, it sounds dumb, but like, we had all of our friends' bands playing in like different church basements, different little record stores, different little like skate parks in the middle of nowhere. And like, yeah, we were going to all the big shows, but when you're 17, 18, you're not the main guy. So the kids the kids now call it like the main character. You're not the main character when you're 16, 17, there's grown-ass men and gangs and shit. Mm-hmm. But when you're out in these other areas, this is when you're getting it. And then we were also traveling all over the East Coast at this point. You know, like, I think by the time I was 18, I went as far as Massachusetts, Ohio, Michigan, Virginia, all for hardcore shows. Yeah, wow. Definitely. Meanwhile, and you're are you doing weekends with bands or uh roading? I was with doing anybody a, or? so, like, if Dysphoria got a show, or like Chris, like, hey, do you want to come out to this? Yeah, we'll come out, or like, hey, yo, Burnside's playing here, let's all go. And then what happened is, is we started linking up with people, and then as soon as we linked up with Chris from Overthrow and Anthony Race from Long Island, who are still guys I love, we were going up to Long Island shows all the time, and then. Like Dysphoria, they would drive to Massachusetts on a Saturday, hit Long Island on a Sunday. And then we started bringing their bands down to our area, and then they started bringing up our friends. Like one of the closest bands, and this is another thing, I, I can't believe every time I talk, I don't talk enough about him. And he's like so integral to the story, but fuck. His name's Buddy Cram. He plays guitar in Kensington. He's actually my, my daughter's godfather. And he was in this band Kensington, which is named after a bad neighborhood that we're all from. Yeah, I've, I've definitely I remember hearing uh, that the the name of that band around the time Punishment was happening. But I think we're kind of jumping forward. But. Yeah, no, no. So like they were around before us. Okay, but they were the neighborhood band. Like Freight Train was a hard ass, like tough band, but nobody got a better response than Kensington. Okay. Until until the gang aspect of like Ninth Circle, that's when like Freight Train started having like a big set, you know, like but like Kensington was like sixty young kids between the age of like fifty fifteen and eighteen going off anytime they played in our neighborhood. Awesome. Like Kensington might have played after Buried Alive the first time Buried Alive came down here. Do they have a demo or anything? They've got stuff online and it just isn't it, it, for what for what I'm talking about, if you heard it, you'd be like, 
I don't get it. But it was capture the vibe. No, I mean, I, yeah. I, I know what it was like to be, you know, I mean, obviously I'm from the Bay Area and I was growing up out here, but at the same time, you know, we had like our kind of mirror versions of that. There were certain bands that were coming up and it's just like, you kind of had to be there. You know what I mean? It's like, if you, if you played somebody the demo, it's like, you're not going to really, you can't, you, you couldn't encapsulate it. You know what I mean? It was just like a moment in time and now it's kind of like gone, you know? So. Well, so that's, that's exactly it. And so Buddy had this old school, like Astro Vance. And so he legitimately would drive all over, you know? And then I, I got them shows in Connecticut. I got them shows. We all drove up me, George, this time we started taking George from blacklist and those first out of town shows. So we're going up to Long Island with him. You know, like this is all like in 97 ish. And linking up with like one for one, linking up with Jay for reason. Like I started linking up with people that I'm still friends with to this day, you know? Um, and so there was a multitude of options, whether it was someone driving up, um, going up to CC's, taking trains to the pipeline, or going to Newark, or going to Middlesex County. Like Bushy and his unbelievable skills to get some random girls to drive us to places, sometimes getting one girl to drive us up and another girl to drive us back. Like, you know, um, it was all in. And so that's really how it, the, like the hardcore explosion came. And then, so where I was getting back to the Philly thing, like when we started to be in a problem, is now we have Nine Circle in Philly. Um, we're in the middle of insane amounts of like legit beef with Nazis, like Nazi gangs. Like, and since we're the younger guys, I mean, yeah, the, the bad luck dudes are still crushing, crushing it, but it's still, uh, well, these are the young, these are the young Turks. Let them in. Yeah. Well, we you, were getting you, you guys are coming up and you're starting to do more like heavy, we were doing li- heavy lifting damage. and getting your, yeah. getting your hands dirty. And so at some point, me, Bushy, Jonathan, who's dead, who was in Bela 13, and our brother Ryan, we got kind of approached. I got approached with Bushy, like, yo, we want to put you guys in. And we're like, no, nah, we can't get in Ninth Circle unless it's all four of us. And they used to call our friend Ryan, Annoying Ryan. That was his nickname. Mm. But this other thing is, is Ryan had an SUV. And Ryan would drive to Asbury Park. Ryan would drive to any show. So at one point, me, Bushy, Jonathan, Ryan, we would go to Lifetime, Texas is the Reason, all these different shows in a weekend. You know, go see fucking Bulldoze. It didn't matter what. We were going to every show. You know, like, so we're like, no, we're either all in or we're not in. <laughs> you know, and then they were like, all right, fine, you guys are in. And then so right around that time, um, in the summer of 98, we did a show. It was Again, 25 to life, because I love hooking them. And it was Bad Luck 13, 25 to life, All at War, Death Threat's first show down here, Clubber Lang's first show with John singing. It was supposed to be liver proof, but they canceled. The two members still showed up. And it was um, Jarrett Wiener, who is um, famous black belt jiu-jitsu, who is I go to school with him now. I go to his school. I booked his first show with this band driven, which would become frontline. And 
there was a weird thing where the band was started with Diego, who was in a freight train, and then they kind of said, "Nah, we don't want you to sing." I mean, they got Jared to sing instead. So then Diego and my boy Slave, who I was friends with since I told you we all started meeting on the buses and the trains and the shows, Slave and Diego started freight train. So in the summer of '98, there was from our neighborhood alone Kensington freight train, uh, um, Frontline. And then there's still the young kids. So like we had a whole other world. And that's like really what changed Philadelphia. Like to be like, all right, this is a fucking problem. Like Freight Train's first couple of shows, people were getting beat up or stabbed. Like not not exaggerating that. Um and that energy, like we went up to we went up to we went up to CC's when they played with Leeway. And there's like 30 of us, you know, and we're all in nine circle. Uh, we went up the week before, typical to us, and did a huge production piece on the side of CC's with Nine Circle all over it the week before Freight Train went up there. So like we started rubbing like the, the Strength for Reason crew, Nanny Coke Straight Edge. They started getting bummed down on us. Like there was little beefs like that. But like by the summer of '98, we started having our beefs. But we were still mad, cool with people. It was like those little pit beefs and those little back and forth. It was kind of crazy. Yeah. And um. Well, you guys were just building. You guys were building your own shit and building your own your rep and your, your well, local like a centrifugal, scene. Was a centrifugal circle. So, like Philly became Jersey, Jersey became North Jersey. Mid, you know, now we're in Long Island and we're in Massachusetts. Now we're here. We're trying with the Swaria there, and the whole time, I'm writing letters and trying to bring bands down. I'm trying to book bands here. I'm trying to book bands there. A lot of losing venues, and um. You guys had the kill time at this point? It's happening. It's just starting to happen. But I was going to get to is from like May 97 to December of 99. I think I was either smoking weed with dust in it or drinking every fucking weekend. And then um, in the summer of 98, I got into a fist fight with my mom. And I had to live back on my dad, which was the craziest. Cause I had lived with him since I was like a child. And here I am, 18 years old, riding a girl's 20-inch bike through the neighborhood. Septa was on strikes. I had to ride my bike everywhere. We're riding graffiti. We were getting into most su- trouble in the summer of 98. Like carrying guns, stabbing Nazis, robbing shit. Just like, like we... Um, not as you said before we started recording, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, as you said before we started recording, graffiti is the outlet to crime. Yeah, we were we were either doing shows, either we were doing our own shows, or we were fighting at other people's shows. We were either having parties, or we were getting a fight at other people's parties. We were stealing shit. It was like the summer of lawlessness, and I was turning eighteen at this time, and. I had a couple people like, dude, you're gonna, you're not gonna make it. You're not gonna, you know, you gotta calm the fuck down. Blah blah blah. And we get to the winter. I'm back living. Me and my mom meet up, and um, my kids live at my mom's house again. And we're, I'm working with these Irish guys doing stucco, and I'm laboring, which is like the coolest job. And I'm working my ass off. I'm making money, but I'm still drinking because I'm a fucking loser. And um. Previous to that, I didn't really drink. And very early on, when I was like 14, 15, and found straight edge, you could see pictures of me like X'd up at that time, which is what all little kids do. Um, 
but I was pretty getting way more incrementally in trouble. And so I break my jaw in a fight in Mayball in December of 98. And then at the end of that year, we get into a big fight during Hapri, and I get my jaw broken a second time in like a month. So I had my jaw wired from December to March. And I had everybody be like, dude, you've got to calm down. Like, you're getting out of trouble. Like, I was March, getting yelled March at. March 99? Yeah. Like, I had my jaw wired because it got broke. I had to get um, three surgeries. My face looked like masked twice. And so I kind of got told, like, you got to calm down. You got to figure this out. Like, I got the talk from, like, everybody. Like, you're, you're out of control. I didn't think I was out of control. I now realize I was out of control because I had no, I had no one telling me what to do with my life. And I was like emotionally reacting to like the drama that came from my kid's mother, the the pain of like, I didn't get the, you know, like, you know, we have one bad reaction to another bad reaction to another bad reaction to another bad reaction. It's just domino All, effect. Exactly. And so the open, the open access to violence, because now we're rolling in a crew of like 25 and people get fucked up anytime there's shows and total shit shows are happening. Dysphoria hits me up right as I get this really cool job I was talking about earlier. Where, like, they were all working at this factory building commercial um, furniture. My dad's like, I got you hooked up. You're going to start. And three weeks later, Chris is like, hey, we're doing a U.S. tour. And I'm like, hey, uh, fuck this job. I'm going on tour. And my dad lost his mind. My mom was like, I think it's a great idea. And he's like, what the fuck? We can get him a job. And I'm like, nah, that's what I want to do. That's <laughs> so what I want to do on tour. And, you know, again, for whatever you want to say about, like, traditional parenting ideas, my mom always saw a road that I didn't see or saw the open road of, like, well, maybe he'll get exposed to something different than what this area is. Mm. And that tour changed everything, which is why I I wanted to talk about all that earlier. Like, I was on a path of total destruction, like self-destruction. I had no one, not no one, no one could stop me. No, anyone could stop me. I was a fucking maybe 155 pounds. But the problem was there was no one being like, oh, Joe is really a problem. Well, <laughs> you know, like you, you weren't stopping yourself. I mean, from everything that you're saying, it sounds like um, that, that tour saved your life, you know, well, and, it, and that's where, it that's gave why you I was direction, broke. you know? Well, that's exactly it. So I go on this tour Mike Brown, at the time when I first started doing shows, Mike Brown just popped up. Yeah, can we? Sorry, can we back up real no, no, quick? No, no, when no, no. I'll, when I'll, did you I'll, meet? I'm gonna roll. Oh, go ahead. So, my like, bad. My bad. No, 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 no. I have a great way to put it out. So, like, as I was trying to say with all this stuff about the neighborhood, we had hundreds through like the last twenty years of kids from like actually from like the actual neighborhoods we're talking about. But that first block of people are just absolutely fantastic. Like my guy who lived three blocks from me, uh, Matt, Matt would go on to be in that band, a short-lived band, Cross Barrow with me. He was in Horror Show. Now he runs a 10th Planet gym in Ventura, California. Oh, wow. And, you know, um, there's all these guys from our neighborhood who all got exposed at the same time. And like I said, it was graffiti. It was skateboarding. It was these little neighborhood shows. So right around 97, rolling into 98, Mike, who was friends with this entire uh, group of kids who skateboarded three blocks from my mom's house, 
And it was like random black kids, a couple Puerto Rican kids, and a bunch of white kids all skateboarding. Some of them wrote graffiti, some are not. And some of them were like the little cousins of our friends. And we're like, oh, all right, that's Mike Brown. All right, you know, like, yeah, you know, like, okay. When we started, we started doing shows, Mike was literally moshing like a villain. I, 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 to this he's day, su- he's such I'm, a fucking ninja. Like, it's. <laughs> well, so, but so what I was getting at is the very first, that 25 delay show I'm talking about, I, I, we have some video of it. Mike Brown might be the highlight reel, and he wasn't even moshing good, but he was all out. And like, so I'm like, that's what happened is all the kids, so I'm like, like when there's like 60 of us, it was like our neighborhood was full of kids like Mike. There was Mike, there's Lacey, there's Dwight. I mean, there's a ton of kids to the point that when we did Buried Alive, the reunion, the guitar player from Buried Alive, like, he's like, dude, only thing I really like to say about that Philly show was, we show up and I've never seen more black kids at a hardcore show. But that was our neighborhood. So like all these kids are becoming hardcore kids and Mike just stood out because like I'd be like, yo, Mike, this is where he's playing. Yo, yo, bet, let's go. You know, and then you know, not only was he not only one of the nicest people, but you know, what do you do when you're a black kid in a really bad neighborhood whose brothers are really in the crazy hood shit, number one. And then on top of it, what do you do when, oh, yeah, you're into that white boy shit? Like, yo, he got, he really. He went through it. Went through it in his own area. Like, you know, like had to hide it from his mom. His mom didn't want him involved. And it was kind of like side-eyeing him about it, you know? And And especially back then, too. I mean, if you're, if you're black or maybe even Puerto Rican, Hispanic, whatever, it's like if you're growing up, you're into skating metal punk hardcore any of the above it's like it's all white boy shit so it's just it's well, not really so cool it was, it was really hard for him but at the same time as he also knew like i gotta get the fuck out of here and so we go on the dysphoria tour and the dysphoria tour was set up by chris beer so Coming Correct, which was the drummer of Freight Train and Bad Luck 13, Chris Cappy, who also draw, drew the first hoodie with the X, which Release used, which later then Floor Punch used. Chris Cappy oh, wow. was in Release. Chris was in Release. He would later be in Bad Luck and Freight Train. He said yes to doing drums. Judd from Dysphoria was filling in on guitar sometimes for Coming Correct. Mm-hmm. So like I would stay at Judd's house and we would go do he would do two common correct shows and I would come and hang out and we would mosh and it's like why well, we started being really close with you know another reason why we really got close with Rick is because Judd was in Common Correct so we'd always hang out. So Common Correct had a West Coast tour with all bets off. And Swan Common Correct too, is right? like Well so well this is what happened is. So then they're like, yo, what's up? And now we're in you summer ninety nine. We're in the summer of ninety nine. And I kind of explained why we were out there. So Dysphoria was kind of like, yo, Judd, you're going to go away all summer and play these shows? He's like, no, it's only a couple of days in California. So typical Chris, he calls up Rick. He's like, yo, if you're going to use Judd, like, we're going to either kick him out of the band or you're going to put us on these shows. So they got on the California shows, and Chris just linked up and got the rest of the shows on his own. He booked the whole rest of the tour? Yeah, and so I was his right-hand man, shotgun driving every show. You know, me and Mike would sell the merch 
at, during the show, Mosh for Dysphoria, wearing um, Mike would wear a hoodie. I would wear um, the Dysphoria hardcore jacket. And then we would go back behind the merch and sell all the merch. You know, it's the first time we've seen Powerhouse. You know, the first Northern California show we were at was Bojangles and Sack. Yep. And that night, me and Mikey Hoods and everybody were running around knocking over porta potties and dropping blocks <laughs> off the top of a um, parking garage. <laughs> like, these are friendships cemented in all this like road stuff, you know, like had I not gone there, it would have changed my whole life. And so <laughs> there's so many weird things to it. Like when we get to Northern Cal, we get to Southern California, everyone's asking if we know who Throwdown is. We're like, no, no, what the fuck that is, man. Well, then we play in Omaha and it's Dysphoria opening for this Throwdown in Omaha. And That's then they're amazing. like, yeah, we're heading out east. I'm like, oh, cool. We come to Philly, come stay at my mom's house. We then throw down and all them, throw down and all them dudes stayed at my mom's house. You know, like all the shit that I did leaving Philadelphia um, was the smartest move of my life. The the block that I did that Bad Luck Dysphoria show or Bad Luck Alt War Death Threat show I was talking about. That night there was a big fight with the neighborhood kids we were friends with. And the Northeast PA dudes. And the thing is, the guys from the neighborhood got into the fight, but then they called all the neighborhoods. So it was a bunch of bullshit. There was a lot of drummer that and a lot of drama that summer in '99. And I was on tour and I got a phone call that George from Blacklist had got shot in the hand. Jesus. And what's crazy is the summer before that, I was telling you, I was living with my mom, I was living with my dad. So it's basically either sleeping on my dad's couch. Or if he was being a dick, which is most of the time, I was sleeping on George just George from Band, uh, Blacklist's floor. I'm sleeping on my friend Paul Butterly's mom's floor, Matt Gallagher's floor. There'd be nights where we would all just sleep out because no one wanted to go home. You got to remember, I'm 18. Some of these guys are 15 and 16 at the time. And that's how our summer was in 98. We were all living on each other's couches. And there's a 110% fact because of who was all hanging out that night. If I wasn't on tour in California, when George got shot in the hand, I probably would get shot in that fight. Yeah. And so it's another like weird thing that comes from taking the open road and leaving like the, the, that thing behind to just try. And so all these people that we meet, I mean, dude, 20 years later, it's just still my friends, man. You know, um, and the thing that we came home with was wanting to do the not, and it sounds such a weird thing. It wasn't fuck the story at all. It was like, we want to do this too. Like not as roadies, but we want to do the same thing with our band. And the, quickly it was like, okay, we're doing a fucking band just to go back on this tour. The story that Bell, I always heard was that you guys really wanted to play Gilman street. 100%. We said within one year, we will be back. And we're fucking, we're playing, we didn't even have a band. We just said, we want to play it with our bands. Because at this time, there was a handful of places in the East Coast, Club 121, not CC's, but like a handful of places that were DIY run. There was that Vermont place. The You know, um, Stalag 13 in Philly was around. 
But, you know, like, we got into so many fights there. That was closing, and it was the beginning of when kill time was going to happen. Like, there wasn't something so culturally significant and punk run. Like, yeah, there were CBGBs and all these, like, old clubs, but, like, they're old by club people. It wasn't, like, a punk thing. And the unifying factor to me was that, like, that come and correct show is come and correct, all bets off. Um, kill, Dysphoria, the, kill the man who questions. Kill the man who questions, page 99. And the fucked up thing is... Pretty I, random I've bill. Those are Philly well, bands too, right? Kill the man who questions as a Philly band? Yeah, well, that's the whole gimmick is. So, like, them guys knew the fuck we were, but wouldn't talk to us because they were, like, the high and mighty. They're, like, you guys you would know, have never the, played together in Philly, right? Like, that show wouldn't happen there. Mike McKee looked down on his nose at us because we were, like, assholes who got in fights. But, you know, outside Gilman Street, everyone was loves and handshakes. And I still have insane amounts of love and respect for Mike McKee. But that's the thing that, that was, a like, a lasting moment. Here I am across the country able to make friends with somebody who in my own city I couldn't fuck with. And I just, I wanted to go back with our band that I wanted to do the band, the band the right way. Like, like we needed to do this. We needed to tour. And also we just wanted to get the fuck out of Philadelphia again. You know? Yeah. But you had to set it all that. I had to set it all that way. So you understand like the inertia, the inertia for punishment First, it was we just want to play Gilman. Then it was, you know, like you had a successful things to do this: get a band, write songs, play some shows, maybe do a demo. But it all came down to we're fucking touring this fucking summer. Well, straight. after that, after that, uh, it was chaos because we didn't really have another. We didn't really have any direction. I think. I mean, I think straight up, you guys, you hit the ground running, and like, I don't even know how to say it other than I'll just say it. Fuck it. Like the amount of balls that you guys had to tour the country for like what five weeks on a four song CDR demo, like you guys, yeah. you guys didn't have, even have shirts, like no shirts. I was just like these, you guys fucking went for it, like respect, like ultimate respect. But the first time I saw you guys, like my first impression was these guys are crazy, like. Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> but it was also like, I mean, the the live show of punishment was like. I mean, you guys fucking, you guys, I don't know. You, you put other bands to shame, bands that had been around. You know, just that the live energy and the presence. Like, I mean, we didn't even really know your songs, but you had the whole room going off like immediately, you know? So that's, I mean, it's like a, uh, not a bait and switch, but um, Damien had nothing, right? Damien had nothing. He had being able to be in this band, touring and doing this band, and, and just trying to do something else. Mike, yeah, I mean, he could be like every other person in his family, or and his, you know, like, or what his family wants from him, or he could be this guy who goes on this tour. And, and the same thing for me. And to get, to to Dan's credit, Dan, our drummer, he was in a band that was friends with all the all the um. We talked about him earlier, Burnside and Did Real Deal. He was in first a band called X Rated, then he was in a band called Forsaken Existence. And so Dan had played a ton of them shows we we're talking about earlier on. But those guys, those kind of bands just played Jersey, maybe played PA, maybe played Connecticut. That might have been as far as those bands went. So he was like, fuck, I want to do a tour 
and we all had one thing. All that time in the van, all that time not playing, we had literally 20 minutes or whatever the fuck we played at that time. We have this time. Like, whatever else matters in the rest of the day doesn't count if we don't go all out on stage because you only have this time for that day. And I'll tell you what, days that we didn't play were some of our most depressing days because we didn't have a show to play. You know, so, like, we ran completely off the idea, like, where some people are like, oh, I want to go get eat, you know, like, oh, I want to hang out with these girls, blah, 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 like, all this other stuff. No, nah, man, like, we had that fucking time on that stage that day. That was all of our primary focuses. And listen, we were not the best band, I think, as far as uh, songwriting goes. I know I was really not a great singer, in, any, in, my, in my opinion. But in the very same breath, what I'll say is, for me, I knew, put me on, put a mic in my hand, and for whatever time we have, we're going to go absolutely all the way the fuck off. And I'm telling you, the cathartic feeling that we had, it, it saved all of us in a fucked up way. You know, like, it was it was us, like, letting out everything. And I don't think that you're wrong. It wasn't about what the songs were or what the fucking dumbass lyrics I wrote, because they're pretty retarded. But it was the fact that this is all we wanted to do. I mean, five weeks before the tour, they're like, hey, yo, we don't have a van. I'm like, don't worry about it. We got this. Well, me and a friend who's dead, uh, we stole a van, scrapped it, took that money with some money we had, and we bought a van. Actually, we had my mom's boyfriend, Big Kenny, come and talk to this crazy Asian guy, Mr. Beck, who's one of the most shady people alive. And Kenny helped us negotiate to buy this van for like 400 bucks. We got spray foam, sprayed the holes where the van had the uh, bullshit going on. Mm-hmm. And then immediately after that, we spray painted the foam, drove from Philadelphia to New Jersey to pick up the band Dan and the gear. And then we went on tour and our first show fell through in Sioux Falls, Iowa. This is, this is the bloodline tour, right? The 2000 yeah, tour? The bloodline tour. Yeah. And them dudes were like, we're not even doing the Iowa show. We're going right to California. And the fuck we're like, fuck you. We're, and then we're like, Oh, I guess the show's fucked. Cool. We're just going to drive straight. So we drove straight from Philadelphia to Northern California. Wow. <laughs> but That's crazy. To us, to us, it was an 85, 90 cent gas. We would go into the store and Mike would steal shit. Damien would steal shit. Me, our buddy Dean, who was on the tour with us, we'd literally walk in. And if they didn't ask us for money for the gas, because we pump first. You were just on the honor system. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, phew, our, our guess they, I guess it's say, free. Oh, guess, yeah, we would just keep, keep it moving, you know? Like, and, like, and all of us had that same inertia. Let's not be in Philadelphia. When we get to California, we're going to lose our fucking minds. I mean, I've never seen a city in my entire life like San Francisco. I remember the first time the Cocodry. That oh, was that was the first time I ever saw you in the flesh dancing, and I was like, "You want to laugh like uh, you and Black Mike?" Like, I didn't know you guys were from Philly. Like, I was like, "Oh, these city guys sure dance hard." Like, I was, <laughs> I was like, I was like sixteen years old, 
And uh, I mean, I'd been going to shows, but I just like, I'd never seen you in person. So I was just like, who's that guy? You know, man, he's fucking killing motherfuckers, you know? And then like, Dude, like l- I- later the next year when you came back with Punishment, I was like, oh, that's, you know, I put it all together. I was like, oh, they're Philly dudes, you know? But yeah. Well, like, we get there. <laughs> to be honest, it was kind of creepy because we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We had gone down there that day we didn't go down we went right from one show to another so it was like kind of foggy out because it was a sunday matinee yeah it's a sunday matinee but so at nighttime it was foggy and um our friend shannon williams who was like the greatest we had just we're linking up with her that night and we all got to stay at her house and she actually brought us back down to the the san francisco so we could actually enjoy the city Mm mm-hmm I, I, dude, you might as well just put me in Lord of the Rings. Like I'd never seen a city look like that. I never seen on the hills. Like I was like I was enamored by the northern. Like I still love the Bay Area. I still love SF. Was that your first time so- here? Yeah, ever. Oh, really? Because you came yeah. back another time and you stayed with Greg, right? And it was just you, not the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I came in. Um, I, I came. My first time ever was '99 with Dysphoria, 2000 with Punishment. And then what happened is, is cause I met you on we, the Missouri tour. I was, I was the one who yeah, let you was, into Greg's house when you uh, showed up. It was me and Tony. So C. The, the punishment tour. I'm, I'm trying to think about the order of this 99. We did the tour punishment played our first show in February. Mm-hmm. I went to California. Yeah. I went to California. I think like March, of that year to hang out and see Throwdown and see a bunch of shows. Yeah, don't ask and me I how a, how I know this, but there's a video of 18 Visions playing at Santa Cruz Vets Hall, and you're yeah, moshing. Yes, I went yeah. to that show specifically to hang out with them dudes because they stayed at my mom's house that summer. Yeah, and they're my boys, and I'm like, you want to fuck somebody up up down there? 18 Visions <laughs> was the shit back in the day. I love them. Well, dude, I mean, and the thing is, is like you know. It's that's like the cool thing about linking up with all these people at that age, you know, and like, yeah, I'll, I'll go out there and check out the show out here, you know. So I go out, I, I go out there and I bring a bunch of punishment demos, which is like freshly minted cassette tapes. And then someone's like, Oh, yeah, you guys should probably get CDRs. And I'm like, Yeah, let's figure out who does that because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, like, we didn't even do that right. But like, um, what I was getting at is like, we just didn't want to be at home. We knew when we got on stage at the time, we really did believe in the band. So like when I say like, we they, like things weren't that good. It's not that we didn't say that then. I think when you're young, you're, you're not going to write. I think it's fucked up. You're going to write some really cool shit, but it's probably not going to sound good when you're 40, which is where I'm at now. But I'm like, I mean, you're still ki- you're still kids figuring out how to play your instruments, well, and well, I mean, go ahead. Well, what I was saying is, is like I shouldn't put it down because I really love all of it. But when I say like, oh, you know, like it is kind of funny at forty, be like, what the hell was going through our heads? <laughs> and, and and as I'm talking to you, I'm rationalizing it. What was going through our fucking heads was get us the fuck out of here, so that way we can please do something besides what everybody else does in the whole city. And that, and I think that, you know, more than just neighborhood kids. Well, yeah, just not, just not be like the rest of the city. And that's the thing is, is, you know, freight train, 
because some guys were older and it sort of still was like what like in the codex of like acceptable hardcore that was chill dysphoria because they were all accomplished musicians they were chill uh but punishment was seen as like this aberration like oh it's these fucking assholes and the fucking tough guy bullshit blah 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 you know like you're saying in philly in philly i mean our first show we played at the kill time because i'll be straight up like our impression of you guys like i mean like i said and i wasn't trying to be disrespectful and like what balls no, you're or, not at all. what balls or whatever all. but like we like me and the other barrier guys like guys our generation whatever our age group whatever you want to say like we were like holy shit like this band is fucking awesome and like you guys had this like pure energy to where like everything you're you're explaining and describing it was just like you're just going for it. And you you, you, know, you kind of showed us, like, I mean, the dancing was, like, straight up. We we were influenced hugely by you guys. We started biting your shit and copying and dancing like you guys. Like, anytime punishment came through, we'd always fucking be at every show. And, like, you guys would play, like, four or five Bay shows or NorCal shows, and we'd go to all of them. It'd be, like, Richmond, Sac, Gilman, Cocodry, or whatever it was, you know. And, uh, I mean, I feel like, the Bay had a lot of love for punishment in particular. Oh, so that's what I'm kind of getting at is like, we play a show, we play a show at the kill at uh, the kill time. There was some fracas because bad luck was playing. Um, we got into it with John toll earlier because his band Pitballs was playing. We had it out an argument and we left it at that. We did. We did the bad luck played next and someone set off a fire extinguisher. Whole show shot got shut down. Um, we go on this tour. We come home to play. Oh, you don't know. I'm missing something. Dysphoria goes on a half a tour with Above This World in 2000. Dysphoria goes from like the middle of the country back to the East Coast with Above This World. And that's when that split came out. Exactly. It came out from that split. So Mike Brown played bass and sang for Dysphoria because Kevin couldn't get all the work. So Mike was actually playing in Dysphoria, and I did I did the same thing, Merch, Roadie, and I brought a shit ton of punishment tapes all through the Midwest. And so we hung out with like Dave Yodi and Doug and Brandon from Seed and Adam. Yeah, Brandon from Seed. was playing uh, I, he was drumming for Above This World in that tour, right? Yeah. So that, like the first time we met all them guys. I'm not old enough to go into the casino and they're going to casino. So like we're in a dysphoria van and Mike hood drops off these dudes. I've never met before, like Yodi and Doug and them guys. And like, Oh, what are you doing? I'm like, um, I'm not old enough to get in the casino. So I'm just going to hang in here. And we linked up in a fucking casino parking lot in the quad cities of Iowa, Illinois. And, um, by the time we came home, the punishment, it was like um, sort of a record release party, sort of speak, because it was Dysphoria, and um, it was Dysphoria and Above This World, and they had the splits, and Punishment that split demo is amazing. came. Like I yeah, love those Dysphoria well, that, songs. Well, so it's weird how I'll get in that in one second. Um, the show was E Town Concrete Dysphoria Above This World and Punishment, and Punishment. Now had all of Nine Circle, the neighborhood that Mike Mig, the guitar player, and Sam, the drummer, 
was from Bristol. They had a huge hardcore scene. We had a huge goon young hardcore scene. And, and Punishment had only played one show in the city. And it was our first show. That kill so time when we, show. Yeah, the kill time show. And Whoever's so listening, came, go watch that shit on YouTube. It's sick. <laughs> and the same thing. That show, Punishment, we were just trying to go for it, you know? And um, the same kind of atmosphere, just way more people at the, at the, at the, at the club space show, because obviously E-Town's on it and just four years on it. And the only fights that night are during punishment. There was like a fight every song, including a fight with Sam, the drummer's friends, who then got beat up on stage by me. And it was like a whole chaos thing. But so what came from that was we were asked to put a group of bands together to be on this compilation that people were making. So we'd say like, oh, you got to get all failed. You got to get like Bail of 13, Dysphoria, Kensington. So these guys decided to do a three CD compilation, rock, metal, and hardcore. And they were going to pay for recordings for everybody. So when Punishment goes in to record Force Fed, the, the dudes from... The one that you gave Van to Mikey Bunker, for the West Coast comp? Yeah. We go to record it for that comp. Um, Bad Luxon doing I Hate Everybody. So then Punishment becomes Bad Luck's uh, guest vocals, which then, this is, we're not even a band. We're not even a band for a couple months. And we go from recording and our friend Jamila, who now lives in the West Coast and has amazing brown belt in jiu-jitsu and an awesome realtor in San Diego. She recorded us in her mother's living room on a four-track just four songs. Now we're in a real studio. We've never been in a real studio. No one's been in a studio like this. And we've got the Bad Luck 13 dudes like in our corners. Like, yeah, it sounds great. And then they became our back and vocals, which every time Punishment ever recorded after, people from Bad Luck were like either in the studio with us doing gang vocals or like just there hanging out. And like they they like that, like all the stuff from before, if that didn't cement like the punishment, Bad Luck 13 friendship relationship, like big brothership. They were our other big brother. They were like the dysphoria were like the good big brothers, and Bad Luck was like the bad big brothers. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, for sure. And so we go on this fucking tour where everyone loves us. It's good times. The Bay Area showed us so much love. We have met people in Salt Lake City and all these places. We come home and we're playing the fucking release show. On South Street, where I saw Sick of It All and Biohazard, my very first hardcore show, and it's all these bands, and the, the thing says hardcore show on the marquee. As soon as as soon as Punishment plays, people start going off, and the security tries to shut the show down, and it turns into an actual riot, which is why if you go to the Philly Hardcore Facebook page, there's like the picture that says hardcore shows with all the cops, mm -hmm. because we fought the whole venue, we destroyed the whole front of the venue. And that is like punishment. And then so it's like, oh, they had this bad punishment play and there was a riot. So we could go to Gilman Street and people would watch us. We could go to St. Louis to the Creepy Call. We could go to Florida. We could go anywhere. But in our own city, no legitimate club would let us play. Because they just thought within you were going to be a problem. You know, literally within the first seven months of our band, we couldn't play in the city. And then we were rocking Philadelphia hoodies 
And the reason why we were rocking Philadelphia hoodies was, you know, there was the shit I talked about before. There was FSU, there was JBC, there was the Tri-State crew with the Bay of Luck 13 guys. Then there was Nine Circle guys, and we were all Nine Circle, but we still wanted something. It was your shit. It was something really for for the band and a couple of our friends, so like like Philadelphia hoodies, and I'll never forget it. The red, they were red, color. right? Yeah. No, everybody had their own color. It was like okay. the fucking Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. <laughs> I had I had a red. You had one. a red one. Well, you were wearing the like, first time we met. You were wearing that. You had your ear tattooed, and your hair was like longer. We did it, I was like, dude, this we, guy is on one. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, so if we would have did this on video, I actually brought that hoodie out. Oh, really? Yeah, I had that. I found the hoodie because I was going to show you because it cracks me up. But so Robbie Ritchie stops me in the story. He's like, hey, man, that Philadelphia stuff's not going to help anybody in the city. And I'm like, I don't care about that shit. We like it. And you were putting it on the punishment shirts too, right? Yeah. And that was the whole thing is like that became our thing before it ended up as a, like a Lamb of God video. <laughs> it was like our thing. Yeah. And so. We go to we try to do the right thing in Philly. Like we played Kill Time, it was great. We played the big show. Oh, there's some fights, but I mean it was the you know, there's fights. Then we played fucking TLA and there's a full ass riot. And I mean, what do we do? Well, we're not gonna be able to open any truck shows. We can't I mean it took like two years for us to play a show inside the city in a reputable club because no one wanted to book us. And then we were attached to all this crazy shit. So we're playing every small little town, any kind of small hall. Sometimes there's fights, sometimes there's not, but it's a lot of fun. But when you said like you guys had a great time and I mean, we would go to Northern California and we would get more love and respect than in our city, which was pretty thriving. Yeah. And that this was is like your home fun. away from home, kind of. Well, well, so it was like everyone knew me at home, and I still was still doing shows. I was actually, my shows were getting better and better. But like, we would go home and we were the band seats. Now, because of who we were, people were still friendly with us and we were still moshing and all that shit. But at the very same breath, it's like, West from American Nightmare would know who Punishment is, but there's no one that would put Punishment on American Nightmare show. Yeah, Throwdown had already gotten too big. Like, um, the only big band that came through Philly and started fucking with us very early on was Diecast. Diecast was like, oh, we fucking love you, dudes, and um, we played shows at like Diecast. We linked up with Blood Has Been Shed very early, and then. What fucking happened is the hardcore scene, which was like in the OOs, was either like the Throwdown, AT Visions world. Yeah, it was it was super segregated or, back then. I don't think people really realized. Was, or it was the American Nightmare, Striking Distance, that world. Now, obviously, I just saw Dave Bird's The Stew Show. We were crying together. Like, I was friends with every facet of the hardcore scene in that regard. But no one would put my band locally on their show. Except for Diecast, except for Unearth, um, All Out War would put on for us. So, like, you guys did a tour with Ringworm, right? Well, that came later. That was later. That was like oh three. Like, if it was a contemporary, like young band, no one had time for us. And then, thank God, and it sounds funny, but like 
there started being new bands show up. So like Shattered Realm started playing. Full Bone Chaos was coming around here. Sworn Enemy was coming around here. And so we would play with the local bands around here, but we would play we would play more with the diecast, God forbid, cold as life, like the older bands out of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And in Philadelphia, we had to either play with like the weird shit, like a life one's lost. And we were like the tough heavy band on that show. Yeah. Or we were playing with like straight up all goon shit, you know, like, and even then like the shadow realm, when they first started, they had a different singer, but the singer was a guitar player, you know, like those guys kind of found out early when they switched Chris to vocals, like we're going to do better, not playing the fury of five crowd. Cause that crowd was like gone. And play in the metal world. At Punishment, we were good, but we weren't good enough to be metal. And so, like, we were always a fish out of water. And so when you say the Northern California thing, like, we were still escaping Philadelphia. Our lives personally weren't great. But we would go and have a stretch of a bunch of shows in Ohio, St. Louis, Detroit, Chicago that were, like, home. Even, like, weird small towns that we played a bunch we could play Salt Lake and it was like home. When we started fucking with, with Texas, it was like home. When we go to California, it was like home. But home wasn't home. Home was like, oh, that's this dude. He won't put us on a fucking show because he's afraid and he's a bitch. And yeah. I would start saying dumb shit to people like that because it started getting corny. Like, oh, you don't ever want to fuck with us and put us on show shows. And then I realized like, okay, cool. You know what I got to do? If All Out War, if Sub-Zero, if Death Threat, if Cold as Life, any of these bands come through, I'm just putting my own band on my show. And I sort of had to go back to what a lot of dudes did before me, where like I would do a show and put punishment on it. Not so we would get paid, just so we just were playing exposure. shows still. No, and I even so exposure, just so that we knew people, our friends would come out. And then also like, yo, motherfucker, like I guess we gotta book our own shows to get played in our own city. And then in 02 and 03 it was like oh you know what like them guys are all right and i i remember forget there was a half-assed there was disciple death threat and true blue which is this dude who would go on to be in reaper records Mm -hmm. they came through yeah they came through and we got to play that like we got to play the um that and it was like the punishment broken by did record release and we did that as a favor to them so they had like they had like a head i mean not a favor it was cool to play with them but like the promoter was like yo we really need something like you guys to play and i'm in my head i'm like how fucking weird is it that like when we go to disciple in erie they take care of us this got to the point where if disciple came to the like came out east it'd be super good funny it'd be like boom Hey, you guys coming down here? Cool. Or you can use all our gear. And then those dudes would drive down in a van with just our friends that we gave them all our gear. Like we had so much cool links with all these different bands, but Philly itself, they didn't, it's not that they didn't want that smoke. It's that they didn't know what to do with us. And by the time they knew what, what to do with us, the original lineup had already kind of lost. And a lot of that energy and edge was nowhere near the same when we started actually getting that love in Philly, if that makes sense. Yeah, I gotcha. And would you say that was around the time you started putting 
your energy towards Shattered Realm, or had you linked up with those guys yet? No, or? no, no, no. Um, so again, friends with Joe because of Second to None. Friends with John Cooper's little brother, Eric Cooper, was the bass player who started Shattered Realm. So the original lineup of Shattered Realm, let's go through this because it'll be fun. There's Chris Collins, who was a singer. He later become a tour manager of the last time Shattered Realm would tour with all that crazy shit would go down. But he was in the band singing for a couple months, sang on an original demo, and then decided he didn't want to be in the band because he felt like they were going to go to metal. So then there was Chris Kyle, uh, Chris Rafalowicz, who would later record the demo and the first the first LP. He played guitar. And but it, the 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 Joe Hardcore of Eric of his Shattered Realm was Eric Cooper, John Cooper from Clever Lang's little brother who played bass. Okay. And I was friends with him. And, and Joe Nunn, second that I had just get done playing shows in like 99, they weren't going to play no more. And he didn't join until 2001, Shattered Realm. And they had to switch up of members a couple times. And early on, we were putting Shattered Realm on some punishment shows and we got a chance. And then it was, hey, how do we do this? Oh, we got to do this. And then it got to the point where um, in 02, I booked that Shattered Round Bad Luck 13 tour where Bad Luck 13 came down to SF and all that crazy shit happened. Yeah, that was, uh, I think, April or May 03, something like that. I remember that. Yeah, so what happened is, um, it, like um, the summer of 02, Punishment and Powerhouse did a U.S. tour together. Mm-hmm. And you, you guys, you guys were supposed to do, I don't think it happened, but it was Punishment, Powerhouse, Battle Luck 13, right? You guys were supposed to do a thing together? That didn't quite come. We together. were we were trying to do something together, and so what happened is, is we did the we did the tour, we did a tour with Powerhouse. Um, I had to leave it. I had to leave to go home. There were some family issues. I literally had to drive. I had to fly home for. Um, the lineup after Mike Brown. So like, if we're going to order, Punishment did a U.S. tour in '01, at the end, and that was the last time Mike Brown played in the band. And then, and who like who were you on tour with for that tour, or was it just solo? by our own show, by our own show, by by ourselves? Okay, because uh, the and first we had done we had done we had done two U.S. tours that year earlier. Yeah, well, you guys did summer two thousand with Bloodline, then you did like spring two thousand one with Missouri. That was like a seven week tour. Okay, that was a lot. That was like uh, then, February March or April March or something. It was March. It was started in March, and I think the last dates were like the end of March, end of April. Okay. And then we did a bunch of fucking shows. Um, because I feel like you guys came through the bay like three times in like a year or something. You was just well, that's like, exactly boom, what boom, happened. Boom. We came in oh one. We came in oh. We came in August of two thousand. Came in March of oh one. And then we came back in. It was like November or something. November of '01. That's when the, our van got in the whole the crazy thing with the how we got to get the van down to Gilman and all that. And then we came back in '02 at Powerhouse in May. And then we were set to do a Punishment Bad Luck, uh, Punishment Shattered Realm tour. Instead, Shattered Realm went on tour because I booked most of it for them. They went on tour and they hung out in SAC and met everybody in 02. 
And then in 03, the tour was supposed to be Rainworm, Punishment, Shattered Realm. Mm-hmm. And Shattered Realm was already having member problems by that time. And they're like, we're not doing the tour. Okay. And then the Punishment tour of 03 was Rainworm and Punishment. Our van caught on fire outside of the North Bay. Outside, oh, wow. like, it was we, not quite... Katati, but like up in that area. Yeah, yeah. And our and our van caught on fire, so we came back to sack, and we didn't even know what we were gonna do. And the band basically that was Damien's last show the night before that. Oh, really? Da- yeah, Damien. You guys played that was, pound show, right? Yeah, but without Damien. Oh. So, because I remember Damien's that last- day, there was two shows at the pound that day because um, it was you guys and Ringworm, and then Terror every time I die and like. I forget who. Else. No, no, no. So, 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 so that was oh three. We played the pound that show, and that was the last. That was the last good show Damien had. Um, our van caught on fire. You know what? We might have played one show at West Coast Worldwide in that week where we were waiting to go home, and half of the band flew home, and me and the roadie had to get a ride home. Oh, and wow. so Matt, Matt, who's I told you about the Ted Planet Black Belt guy, mm-hmm. him, our friend Josh Shirley, who played guitar in. Victory Strike and later Horror Show, who's now passed away. Those two and my girlfriend, who was my kid's mother now, drove from Philadelphia to California to pick us up and get the gear home. Wow. With a friend, our friend Stoney. Our friend Stoney, who was our roadie at that tour, he died. <laughs> it's fucked up. The kid whose van it was, he's dead. He was a drummer of punishment. The guy, Josh, who drove with us, he's dead. And Stoney, who was a roadie, he's dead. Damn, RIP. And um, when I got back home, I got asked to be in Shattered Realm. And I was like, dude, my van caught on fire. Me and my girlfriend got back together. I got Me and my dad have a side business, and we're working full time. I ain't doing shit. And Joe's like, well, it's Europe. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck about Europe. This is uh, September of 2003. So Shattered Realm is blowing up it they said yes to eulogy alvaran which meant eulogy distribution and coverage and promotion but alvaran pays the bills i was told by people because i'm we were stupid that you know doing europe alone is hard you know because a lot of european labels fucked our older guys so thorpe we did one record with two damn hype which fucked us because or Dan, who did the tour with Punishment in 2000, was afraid to get to sign on his name on a contract and do the record. So we had no drummer, and we told Matt, and he was like, no, you'll be fine. Just get a drummer. Don't worry about it. So we were rushed in the studio with bad players, and the first LP for Punishment sucks. And Dan... You're talking about where, where Love is Dead and Hope Never Lived? Is that, is that yeah. it? Yeah. Um, Dan, I love the artwork for it though. The razor blades. I know it's all great artwork, Sick. but um, but um, the thing is, is you know, like we—that's basically a demo because we didn't have the real drum. Like we didn't have a good drummer on it. We kind of rushed. We had like four, three weeks to get it ready. And Dan recently hit me up and was like, "Yo, man, I'm really sorry to do that record. I feel bad." It's like, yeah, no shit. We need a fucking good drummer on the record. Um. Among other things, like I had pneumonia in the studio. None of us really had anyone by today's standards, the way these kids record and like 
the support people get from records is crazy. Not the financial, but like someone being in there saying, Hey, this doesn't sound good. Maybe we should try that. The guy who recorded us was a really cool guy. His name was Nick. He was in a band called Walleye and many other bands. He actually passed away two years ago as well. Um, Nick was a good guy, but he's like, ah, I'm doing this record. Matt's probably not going to pay me. And then the minute bad luck gets in the studio, it's chaos. Jay Goldberg's acting like a wrestling manager, the singer of the band. He's like, the good job, daddy. Don't do another take. My boy only does one take. <laughs> like, like, you know, like we didn't really take putting the record in. we didn't understand how to make a record. So as much as that was our good shot, we did not put a good foot forward in that. And we tried, but it was haphazard. And so when John from Eulogy was like, I won't put you on Eulogy because we would go down there and hang out with John for like two days. John was our boy. Another home away from home was Florida. And he's like, I could get you signed to Alvaram, but I didn't want to do Europe, which is such a big mistake. Probably one of the biggest mistakes punishment ever made. And so Shadow Realm was getting big in Europe. We had no European presence, even though we toured more than all them bands that were on that label in America. There was bands like Down to Nothing who we were on Thorpe with, which is what we went to. We went for Thorpe for the second record. Mm -hmm. We had toured more than them bands, but they were contemporarily more popular. So even they were getting to go to Europe before us, even though they didn't even, they didn't even really tour that much. And it was very confusing for a punishment because we're like, wait a minute. We've done X amount of U.S. tours because people said you got to tour a lot. We've toured with Powerhouse. We've toured with Ringworm. And then I was like getting fed up. And again, well, I you guys told, were a workhorse band, but I don't think that, um, I mean, Thorpe from, I mean, I worked at record stores, you know, back when I used to work for tower and some other, whatever, I won't get into all that, but from where I was standing, Thorpe always had really good distribution, but they never really seemed to be like the cool guy, you know, well, cool, we were never the cool guy and going back versus to like, like a bridge nine or a death wish, even though they were probably just as visible, like in probably in most of the same stores, but they just, I feel like the Thorpe bands never really got the cool pass that bridge nine. Bands so got. in Oh one, it was still me and Damien and Mike in end Oh one. It was at least me and Damien and Chris. Damien starts tattoo apprenticing and he has less time for the band. But I'm still in let's fucking do this. I don't want to be home. The powerhouse tour was Nick Calhoun, who we stole. He really stole him. He, the second day we went to Baltimore with powerhouse, we made Nick come on the road with us. <laughs> Phil, the keyboardist of Missouri. Phil, the keyboardist of Missouri, played bass and punishment. We had a drummer named Justin who learned the songs in two weeks. And Damien, the the powerhouse lineup was the worst lineup, I think, for punishment, period. And then well, going forward, we had, we go back to Buddy Cram and Kensington. Eric from Kensington, who was my friend growing up in high school, he had, he had cousins who were mad younger than us. Well, they were in that school rock shit, and they were really good musicians. And they were at every hardcore show, and I really loved the idea. Of like, because I I was going to hardcore shows at 13. Here's these 13, 14 year old kids at shows. And they were going to shows even earlier, just like little small shows. So Timmy and Ethan were in the band at 15 and 16 years old touring with us. Yeah, Timmy was like that, your Todd youth, pretty much. You know, he was well, like a tiny Ethan, little the drummer, kid. Ethan, the drummer, was even younger. And 
uh, Ethan's dead now. And, you know, um, someone should have said, Joe, why are you touring with little kids and Damien? Like, why don't you get a real band and come back? No one ever told me stop. And I just kept going because I wasn't happy with anything. And I kept thinking one more tour and this will be the one or one more tour. And then we're going to be able to do this. Like I didn't have anyone really laying out for me what I was doing wrong. Maybe I was too headstrong or maybe I was a dickhead and I didn't listen. But to me, I didn't know any other way. Just keep going, go on tour, go on tour, go on tour, go on tour. And so when the van caught on fire in 03, that was the end of Damien. The following year, I knew I was going to be a dad, which I wasn't even ready for. Because I, I ironically, had I probably gone on the Shattered Realm tour in Europe, I probably wouldn't have been with the girl who I would end up having my kids with, my next kids. And um, that's a whole other thing. But like, I was like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to try to get some shit together. And then I realized again, same thing I felt at 16. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to just be a normal dude. Like I don't want to give up on shows. I don't. And both times I was going to be told I was going to be a dad. I got told you're going to grow up. You're not going to have. You're not going to go to shows. You get blah blah blah. And I'm like, why do I have to lose everything to be a dad? I don't like this. So in typical asshole fashion, I went like completely fuck you in the opposite direction. And next thing you know, not only are we doing punishment, but we're all linked up in FSU, and that just came organically. You know, um, we had a lot of beef in 01, 02, and 03 with Nazi gangs here. Mm-hmm. And there started to be a new Nazi gang here, and it was spreading. And so if I wasn't at a show, we were chasing these assholes all over. We were fighting them in the city. We were fighting them in the towns. We are going to the punk shows just to fuck them up. And you start getting militarized and, like, organized just to fight one gang. It doesn't take too long to be like, hey, yo, let's link up with these guys. And it was like, we already were rolling with Philly dudes and a mixture of Philly dudes and Jersey dudes. Because very early on, we were entwined with John Cooper from uh, Clubber Lang, our boy Mark, Joe Nunn. Like, we were very all close-knit guys to the point where, like, they would come and just hang at the bar with our neighborhood friends. And the next group of dudes from the neighborhood were even crazier because they were just right like barroom kids who, because there was a hardcore scene in 96, 97, when these guys were finding hardcore, they were finding it through neighborhood mentions. Like the, the original Philly FSU lineup was just neighborhood goons, like the equivalent to like, if you could take the idea of like soccer hooliganism and put it into hardcore. So that was our, that was the Philly FSU dudes. Neighborhood dudes and a couple hardcore people. And we were set to like attack these Nazis at all costs. And I just, I, I, I'm trying to alliterate that what few wheels are left from 1998 running and running on tour. 2004 was like the last year of it because Punishment has the craziest lineup ever. We had like eight dudes in this van, we, but we take, pun, we take Blacklisted out. Blacklisted was supposed to tour with Comeback Kid. And that was I their booked, first tour, right? Well, I was trying to book a tour with us and them. And Comeback Kid was like, we want to take Blacklisted. And then last minute, they backed out. And then Blacklisted, can we be on your tour? So, you know, we're playing with we're playing with 
internal affairs for playing with fucking blacklisted and them crowds couldn't give a fuck with us. They didn't like it, but it was funny. And it was blacklisted's first tour. And so by the end of that tour, and that was again, around that, around the same time that split came out too with uh, uh, first blood, first blood blacklisted split. We recorded it. Actually, what's crazy is that recording is the thing that like formally cemented like the Philly FSU Boston FSU connection. Okay, not that we weren't friends with them guys for years, but that was like the the the, the signing of the declaration, so to speak. Because they did that record at um it, in uh, Mass, right? In Outman, out, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. It was it now, was it was, was it Outpost or whatever? Outpost, yep. Yeah, we drive up there just to record. It's the first time I've ever seen an iPod. I'm shaking it, and they're like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I thought it was going to skip." And then I'm like, dumbass. Uh, That's awesome. It's like 30 degrees, and I'm on top of the blacklisted van naked because we used to team wolf, which is the thing we used to do back in punishment days. We used to get on top of a van and ride it <laughs> while the van was going fast. So I'm naked team wolf in a 25 degree weather in New England. Yeah. And that and that night I'm hanging out and we're signing the declaration <laughs> so to speak that's why you guys did uh i for an eye well yeah i sang that night and those dudes were uh gang vocals and then we all talked and whatever and so by that summer i know i'm about to be a dad again and i don't know what to do i'm in this gang we're getting into trouble already shows are great not for punishment but there's a lot of good shows and hardcore starting to really change i love it but we're getting in a lot of trouble and um, punishment tours miserable. Like we're, you know, again, no planning, no nothing. We had to do this embarrassment now looking at it, but it was still like, Oh, this is what happens when your whole idea is go, go, go and wing it. And I think what happened is winging it lasted like one too many times. And then it's like tour winging it was just a failure. Not, not for any other reason than I just was a complete fuck up and just pushing something harder than I should have. But if it got blacklisted out there, Hey, it was worth it. And a lot of my friends who were on that tour have never been in any other part of the country since. So I exposed a bunch of neighborhood kids who were people that I still love to this day to like traveling across the country. And I'm not happy with that, but like, we're like living like a maniac. I mean, I could, I could do a whole 10 hour podcast just on the, the punishment tour. Um, that tour. And so the van dies in the middle of the country. And we, the ones who don't fly home had to take a Greyhound home. But a week before that, Joe Nunn was like, yo, um, we don't have Paul. Now, mind you, Chris had left in the summer of 03, which is why they didn't tour. Uh, Paul joined in fall of 03 to do Europe. And was already out of the band. And his last show was supposed to be Hellfest in New Jersey. That's and the next year. <clears throat> no, that's the year I'm talking about. So Oh really? They played they played Hellfest 03? They they played they played 03 and 04. I was at 03. I don't remember them playing 03. But um the year after was uh the one with the riot, right? With Battle. The of year 13. with the riot they played, and maybe they played 02 then. They played they played two Hellfests, and then they drove out to the Furnace Fest where there was a blackout. Mm-hmm. And so Chris was out in 03. Paul joined for the fall tour and a spring tour 
and like local shit, but wouldn't didn't want to do any other stuff. So Joe was like, dude, we have a whole US tour, eulogy tour. Can you just fill in? And I was so again running on empty, not sure what to do with my life. And like, fuck it, I guess I'm going on tour. And I started learning Shadow Realm record. I started learning Shadow Realm lyrics, like the songs I don't know well enough in the punishment van. So I'm driving at night after playing a punishment show, screaming Shattered Realm lyrics to get ready for them. Van breaks down, we come home. We have uh, Hellfest, New Jersey is shortly after. And then I'm practicing with Shattered Realm and ready to go right on tour. And in fact, it's fucked up. The drummer who was, we had a drummer, Ethan, who died. He was in punishment for the tour. We had a kid in the van who came home from the army. He was set to take over and be in punishment. But after hanging out with Blacklisted, he was like, hey, do you mind if I join Blacklisted? And I said, dude, you'd be so dumb to not join Blacklisted into the punishment. Mm-hmm. So punishment stopped playing anything after May of, or no, um, November of 04. We kind of wrapped it up because at this point, no one in the band besides myself was an original member and it just wasn't fun. And I was focusing on Shadow Realm, you know? Yeah. And that would stay that way until 09 when Bad Luck would ask me to do a Halloween show because Bad Luck does a Halloween show every year. It's called the Satanic Rave. And I convinced Damien to practice with Michael and Kyle from Lifeless. And that became a lineup that we did for quite a bit on and off was Damien, Michael, Kyle, and sometimes a, a second guitar player. And again, it's either bad luck or a benefit show was the only, and still is basically the only reason why we would play. But punishment ran its wheels out because I was just a fucking Again, we're talking about a 24-year-old kid here. Like, this is still me at 24 years old. At 24 years old, I'm working. Any minute that I'm not home or not on tour, I'm either building cabinets or working side jobs with friends to make money. Um, The shows I booked, I made, like, such little money that that's not even money that was considered income because that would just go right to the next show. But we were having some pretty good shows, and that was pretty cool. And started really building up um, another wave of people from our neighborhood. And once the FSU shit kicked in in Philly, it was just we were constantly engaged in chaos and criminal activity. And so running into that tour, I was not paying attention to what I should have been. And by the time the following year happened when Shattered Realm was touring in 05, with the debt before dishonor, Ramallah. Mm-hmm. I'm 25 years old and I'm out of my goddamn mind. I got a, two kids by two girls. My daughter, who is like now in modern time, my daughter is 24, and literally everything that I could ever hope that would come from a human from me. Um, she's like a mini. She's not a mini version because she's almost my goddamn height. She's amazing. But at the time, like my she was living in an army base with her mother who was married. So I didn't see her and I had this son, but 
her mom's like, you need to grow up. And anytime someone would tell me that, I'm like, fuck you, I ain't growing up. You can't tell me what to do. Which is that ultimate against her shit. And between the gang shit getting more elevated, I was in total chaos. So rolling into the end of 05 when we're on the eulogy tour with the shooting, we have complete chaos in my home life, complete chaos in the band life because, you know, Shadow Realm is hitting the same wall that Punishment did. Oh, too tough to play with the metal bands, too metal to play with the hardcore bands. So, yeah, we're playing good shows, but, like, we're not playing ass-to-nuts packed shows like some of these bands that are doing really well are because we're gang-affiliated. and Or if we're not gang-affiliated, that town, it's metalcore kids that don't know us, you know? And the shows that were good were good, but there were some bad shows that we played. It was kind of like seeing me the chink in the armor, like, fuck, what are we going to do? Like, I can't do three more U.S. tours. And uh, Shadow Realm had the same problem punishment did with the Vans. Though Joe Nunn was smarter, smarter because he had all the experience with Second to None. And then rolling into Shadow Realm with Eulogy, they just were more set up with merch. And they were a bigger band. So there was a little bit more things to keep the wheels under them. But the Vans would break down. The first 04 tour, our van was destroyed. Before we even started the tour, we left off the tour nine days late, the eulogy tour, and we finished it in van, like everyone jumping in other people's vehicles. So in 05, we played in Europe and made a bunch of money to buy this bus. And we did this US tour with Depp and Fort Dishonor, Ramallah, Suffocate Faster. And the end of that tour, that bus was shot. So we had to get it fixed and driven home from Florida. And we go on this eulogy tour, and we have this van that dies, and we end up with a fucking uh, some kind of other van. Thank God eulogy hooked it up because we would have fucked up. We had to borrow money for that, and we're in this van, and half the damn tour is crew people. And I think it was either God or just the nature of the universe, but. All the chaos of all the fighting at home, on tour, being on tour with a ton of crew people. The Tucson thing, one would have said, this is the worst thing that ever happened. This is the calamity to end all calamities. But I think it was the like the kind of like, the here's your check for all the bad things that you've been doing the last four years. You know, with the punishment stuff, the FSU stuff. Karmic debt. Yeah. Yeah, just a car, like completely karmatic death. Um, for me, I I didn't get into Jocko until three years ago, but I took full ownership of all that man, and I I found out pretty quickly. Like there were so many micro decisions that I made at twenty four and twenty five that either indirectly or directly made that shooting happen. Not go shoot this guy. That I'm not saying that. But the small little decision that doesn't seem like it's a big deal and the causality and collateral damage that came from it all has been in front of me still to this day. You know, it's granted, I'm not sitting here crying and be like, what did I do wrong? 
You know, like we were still engaged in legitimate hard fighting with these Nazis. And really, you know, not nice shit, not hardcore crew beating somebody up. I mean, there might be one of them or two, but we started slowing down on that. And when we're just like, we would work security at the first Unitarian church for R5. And later on, we would help Sean the following summer between 04 and 05. We would work security when Hellfest fell apart and Sean booked a bunch of shows at the church and the Starlight Ballroom. And Sean acquiesced to show me how to do shows at the First Unitarian Church. And that like completely leveled me up. You know, at the time I've been booking shows since March of 97. And I had some idea, but nothing like what Sean showed me. It was like doing things, spinning my wheels, not even getting tour offers unless my friends would call me. You know, like it had to be like my own personal network. I wasn't dialed into the bigger network yet. Mm-hmm. And I was always frustrated. Like, how come I don't do these shows? And it's like, because you're not really knowing what you're doing. You know, I spent from 17 to 24 without like a tutor. And Sean Agnew really became that guy. And that's the fucked up reason why I'm bringing all this up. Like, on one hand, I'm learning how to do these shows and I'm learning like the real thing about these, dis- you know, like this place that I went to the first time as a kid. I re- I like still worship it a- as a church because like the saving grace of so many things. But for me, this is really when I learned how to do shows the right way. And this is how I learned how to do all the back end stuff because Sean Agnew taught me all this stuff. And so. On one hand, yeah, I go home and I work and I'm trying to be a dad, and but I'm still an asshole and a crew and still going to shows and getting in trouble. But then when I do these shows or I help out Sean, I feel like this good light in me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was always like this back and forth between the two. And so Tucson the shooting happens. The next day that show gets canceled in Vegas and we get told we're not allowed to play. So the last show I played in California of my life was the December, the show after that. We drove all the way from Vegas to SF. And it was the OBHC guys who are still my dudes who basically sat down and went, dude, what the fuck? What the fuck are you doing? This is now three years since we did the Powerhouse tour. And I didn't see Ernie on that tour. I I seen him the year before. And that was the last time I'd see Ernie. But like these dudes were like, dude, like you don't need to deal with like whatever you're doing, you're doing wrong. And it's like a weird thing when you have Chris Powerhouse and them guys telling you like we love you, but you're doing something wrong. And not having a father figure that was like, damn, dude, what's the fuck? Yeah, maybe I am fucking up. And so I go home. Um, into early 2006, it was like, oh, pop, you know. Shattered Realms getting ready to go to Europe. We did a European still, festival. Still kind of business as usual. You're not, you haven't made that uh, kind of psychological shift yet. Well, no, I mean, like at this point, um, again, um, I guess it's like where the part where the narrator would say later on, Joe would find out through a lot of years of therapy on and off that all the traumatic shit from his childhood that he thrust into his teens that pushed him into his early 2000s. You know, like his early 20s, 
it's all starting to just fall apart in front of them. You know, like my mom's situation wasn't good. She wasn't a good mental space. I'm not doing the right thing as a dad. The cruise shit is fun, but it comes with a lot of chaos. Yeah. And I could even see it starting to wear on my baby boys at home. And um I do this tour I I do this tour in 06. Come home and I get arrested that summer for a fight I wasn't even involved in. And what was fucked up is that winter tour when we went to Europe, my friends were involved in a fight at Posi Numbers that ended Posi Numbers in 05. We were there to help out, help us in 05 when it fell apart. You know, like Sean, Richie, Rich Hall really did some awesome shows to save what they could for Hellfest. And I was kind of shown like, oh, fuck, man, people would actually come to Philly for a fest. That's crazy. And so I had asked Sean, like, would you help me put a festival on? And Sean's like, yeah, I'll teach you how to do it. You know, like, we'll be partners. You know, I'll help you with the bands. Make sure your budget's right. So I'm working on this sh- show for the summer. And it was kind of weird because, obviously, in California, Sync with Cali was over. And I heard that they were starting to do Sound of Fury through Todd and um, Riley, who I knew from doing the tour with Internal Affairs and all the stuff with Blacklisted. And I'm like trying to get some bands and I'm like, fuck, man, this is kind of hard. And I'm thinking like, oh, you know what? Like, let's see if Sean will email. Now, Sean emailing him caused more weight to me. Plus, I think my email at the time was like Joe Hardcore FSU at AOL. <laughs> <laughs> super hey, you wonder why it's a, Yeah, super professional, right? Yeah. So um, me getting arrested really changed a lot because I'm out. I mean, the cops, the whole situation was fucked up, but like, thank God hardcore came through and like bailed me out and got me money for my lawyer because now I have something over my head. One strike, one bad thing you do, Joe, and you are going to do, you're going to sit until you go to trial, which could be years in Philadelphia. As a first time since this story started, <laughs> literally the first time in my entire life where if one more bad thing you do there was an actual consequence and it was like a couple weeks before my 26th birthday so half of my life at this point we've been talking about hardcore and shit I've been running around without consequence maybe I got beat up a bunch of times because I was younger and smaller maybe internally bad decisions were made and toxic things would happen or relationships would fall apart. But like true real life consequences would happen if I fuck up one more time. And then all the people who put the money out to bail me out so I could just have a life would look at me like a fucking loser. And that was one of the greatest motivations to slow my brain down and start figuring out like, what the fuck are we doing? Why are we doing this? But it it literally, it, it took 13 years, man. And then you just finally just decided to fall back a little bit and focus on um, like work no. and, and booking and stuff. Or <laughs> no, I um that that first European tour, I was already doing. I was back building cabinets and making good money. And a friend of mine had said, "Hey, listen, um, I can get you in the union." I'm like, "Well, oh shit, how much is that going to make?" 
And he told me, I'm like, all right, I'm doing that. And so like I ju- I ju- I jumped in with them and I start learning what they're doing. And actually, like a month in, I had to leave to go play one European tour uh, f- uh, a fest got flown out for. And so I kind of learned early, like, okay, these guys don't let you just quit for a month. You gotta like actually be there. So okay, this is the first time, like, as an adult, you know, my dad was always really good at stuff, even though he's like a crackhead. So if he was working for someone and he didn't like them, hey, fuck you. I'll go work somewhere else. You know, like that got embedded in me. Or like, hey, all right, cool. Hey, listen, in a week I'm not on I'm not here for a, a month. What? Yeah, I would wait till the last minute to tell my boss I'm not here. So but there was always work, you know, like there was always work. You always work down the street for another guy who needed you. There was always good money, so there's always work around, you know. But it was the fuck you. Like, oh, I'm going to go on this tour. Oh, you know what? If you're not letting me take off so I can go drive to play the show, fuck you. I'll get another job. And it was the union. Being around normal people. Like being around. I mean, you can union guys drink. Not on the job, but they drink. Some guys might have drug habits, but you hear about it, but you never see it. But being around dudes that are okay with waking up at four in the morning every day and working. I've never been exposed to that because like my dad was non-union his whole life, worked in either building cabinets in a cabinet shop or working as um, like a carpenter and like framing out stuff. And in between 03, 02 and 03, and me and him did a lot of side work and we were looking ready to build some shit up. And the tour, the last power, the last punishment tour for Ringworm, we had money saved up, and I came back from tour. I thought that we'd have it when we get back, and it turns out he, he stole it from me. And that ruined my relationship with him forever, which is another reason why I think I kind of spun a little bit out of control between about to be a dad again. My dad stole all this money from me. Why not join a gang and start all this crazy, I mean, you know, continue all this crazy nonsense? But it was the duality of having bail over my head and people who put up their own money who I wanted to give them back their money. These people put up, I mean, Sean Agnew's bailed me out twice so far. You know, like I wanted to give him back his $1,000 that he put up for me as part of my bail. Didn't want to let these people down. And then having a union job, there was no like fucking off. You know, like granted, we're recording this podcast late. I'm going to work in a couple hours. It don't fucking matter. It don't matter what I did because I, I you know, like from the time I was 26 until now, doesn't matter what the fuck you do. You get up and go to work the next day. Yeah. And so that kind of thing really shifted my mindset. You know? Um, I don't know where you want to take this from here. No, I mean, uh, definitely you, it sounds like you just, you were able to transition out of that, uh, out of that mode of just wilding out and just kind of rising to the occasion and, and turning the page, you know? I think what happens is it's it's not as it's not as formulaic, but it's like an open like you know um in Philly they got the seventy sixers things called trust the process, which I'm not a sports person, Mm. but it's an easy reference to use. But like the process was get a kid who needs stability and give them stability, the ability to make money, and like it tired me out. Like being tired working all the time was good. And I was learning new shit and I liked it. And um, 
mind you, I, I until '08, actually until February of '09, from June '06 to February '09, I was so stressed out. I was literally losing my mind. Um, it's when I first really started being cognizant of anxiety. Um, because I didn't know if I was going to jail that month. You know, we had constantly had to go to court, constantly get pushed back. You know, um, my family situation wasn't great. The stress of it all was terrible. Um, like the inner relationships with my children weren't great. You know, like nothing in my life was really great except for these shows that I start doing on us and this stupid fest that I got going on. But like the formulaic, like, oh, he did this and it was all together. It's like, no, like for some dumb reason, being in a union and having to go to work, working on the fest and feeling like for all the crazy dumb shit that I've ever done in my dumb life, I at least gave hardcore. This is hardcore. And I put everything into it. So it makes in my head like, well, I'm not a complete shithead. I also did this, so to speak. And then you wanted to have a legacy that uh, you could respect. No, no. I'll tell you. Uh, it was first penance. It was a legacy. It was like, dude, I know that if I could just, <laughs> it's always like someone says like a gambler, like punishment was a gamble. Shadow realm was a gamble. But for me, it was like, if I could just do this and show people like, I'm not a fucking, I'm not like a caveman. Mm. And I'm not like some dude who only listens to Eat Down Concrete. You're really not. You're incredibly intelligent, <laughs> articulate dude, and you've you've <laughs> well, contributed like, a lot to hardcore. Well, so. the whole gimmick is is like, if you look at that first 13 years, it's like yeah, it's chaos. It's but like my life, my the, the I always hate saying this, and and I wish people wouldn't say it to me, but like the Joe McKay life and the Joe Hardcore life are intertwined in toxic symphony at times and like the thing is is the stuff that joe harker was doing magnanimously was better than the joe mckay stuff because i couldn't figure out the balance in it and you know you're working your family life sucks but you have a job and you got money coming in so it makes some of the stuff not so bad but um what happened is is you know some of my some of my local guys are going to jail some of my local boys are having babies and um it all started hitting me that everything that we do has like a really a ripple effect and i really didn't want i really didn't want a decision that i make to directly affect someone who if they died i'd be sitting there at their funeral looking at their mother you know like we were already losing people like Stony dying was a huge issue. And that was like Stony dying was pretty hard. Oh shit. Sorry. Um, Bless you. <laughs> thank you. Um, Stony dying was hard. We've always dealt with loss, but then right after that, it just like, it was one after the other. Like it wasn't too long after Stony died that Josh Shirley died. It wasn't, you know, like there was all these different people that were dying and I just didn't want some dumb decision that wasn't going to change the price of tea in China to be 
a scenario where we're, we're sitting there and hugging their mother because I made a decision and someone got killed. And we had also escalated the violence in many directions locally to where it was inevitable if we hadn't started pulling back some of the efforts it was going to go to that point where people were just going to go, someone's going to have to kill someone soon. Um, knowing that, I had to start pulling things back. Also, just relationship to hardcore. Hardcore started being something that in lieu of, and go, let's go all the way back, 96, oh, we're the jerk-offs from City, and you know, well, there's just some neighborhood dudes. There was a level of ire and anger towards the contemporary hardcore scene people in the Philadelphia scene because they I, we always if you're from this neighborhood that we're from it was like a actually like a conglomerate of neighborhoods like a swath area called the river wards mm-hmm. you go to south philly and people know that we're from this neighborhood you go to the northeast people know where we're from like we're we we know we know our own when we see each other and people in the city know where we are kind of guys show up, you know, and that's a chip on a shoulder. That's very much going to stay no matter what. So we walked in to hardcore with this chip on the shoulder and, you know, it took a long time for, uh, to, for me to change my position and be like, yo, fuck these dudes. They don't like us anyway to, they don't know any better that we're better than what they think we are. And all this shit is important to all of us. It took a long time for that to shift, but once it did, I didn't want locally the newer people like Bob Wilson's band and the band that came after Letdown. Them kids didn't deserve to just get beat up because they were moshing. Like I, I don't want to see another cycle of that. Yeah. So we, so we, we, we slowed a lot of that shit down here and changed in relativity time. You know. Hardcore in Philadelphia from 04 to 07 is much different than hardcore from 2009 when Blacklisted starts just being this like beginning of the be this giant powerhouse band and Kid Dynamite's coming back and Painted Black's active. Like, I, I do believe us being less violent and being, being more jovial. And more open to the idea, like, oh, they don't like it. Fuck us. Fuck them. We've been here long enough now. But um, that's why I said to you over at the very beginning of this conversation, you know, it's not without. It took a long time for Philadelphia to get to this, and it took a lot of, a lot of our own journey, which is why I spent a lot of time in the video explaining, like, nothing comes because. A, like a, a orchestrated path. I couldn't orchestrate this path. A lot of this is organic. A lot of this is, you know, this happens. So then we reacted. So then this was the reactions, the reactions, the reaction, reaction. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was it was over twenty five years of experiences to bring well, you well, to now. You know. Well, that's exactly it. And it's like, you know, um, to sidewind back a little bit. This is hardcore. Was my way to give back and to put something in my head. So when I'm stressed. Listen, there ain't nobody looking at 10 to 15 years that isn't worried about doing the 10 to 15 years. Yeah. At the end of the day, I wasn't worried about getting beat up or raped in jail. I was worried about what would happen to my kids. Mm-hmm. What would happen to my mom? What would happen to my fucking little sister? 
And yes, what am I gonna like? What am I gonna do? Get out in ten or fifteen years and be like, let's do a punishment reunion? Like this is my entire world falling apart, and I was so worried about losing it, and I had never worried about losing any part of my life before. And I've been shot at, been stabbed, you know. We get in some crazy situation. Never, you know, that typical. It'll never be me, you know. Like that'll be somebody else. It won't be me. And I like finally had to like process the consequences for three years while going to work, still trying to maintain any form of normalcy, which was hard. And the smartest thing we did was just get rid of the stuff that made our group of friends violently aggressive towards outsiders. And we became more welcoming and our shows flourished. Um, Agnew and then were giving me more shows to do. And I was then starting to be hit up directly to do specific shows and really started getting great relationships with so many different bands because like, Oh, Joe's doing it, you know, like because I did maximum penalty opening for Bane and then later poked up maximum penalty terror, maximum penalty's record came out on Reaper. There's always little things I started doing through these shows with the church and the, and the Barbary and all these little places we were doing shows that would all little bit, like a little bit, by a little bit, by a little bit, by a little bit, help things out. And I'm not going to lie to you. Punching someone in the face is a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I mean, lying, like there's some people I still wish I would have punched that I didn't, and then vice versa. There's people I punched I shouldn't have. Yeah. But um, there's nothing that, there's no, the only ripple effect that a punch is damage done and the the consequences. When you do something positive and you put good things into the world, you know, you do something like I do something dumb. Hey, here's some band. They look cool. Let's put them on this thing. Oh, wait, now people really like them. Hey, you know, I know you guys like this old band. Can I put them on your show? Yeah. Oh, shit. Next thing, like having the opportunity to give back to the scene that gave me all the things we've talked about is so much far more rewarding and cyclical. And I've never searched for validation. I've always searched for like, it's not going to let somebody bully me and I'm not going to let somebody disrespect me. And I'm not going to let somebody who is, was a couple years older than me act like I didn't have a place to belong. And then when we were around for a while, then it, when we were talking about the popular O thousands into the, like the O four, that crowd, that crowd lasted such a short amount of time. But they were so confident they were like the the people, like, oh, you know, yeah. we're the badasses. And then the fighting badasses, but they had big mouths because they were all internet people. Yeah. And they all got chopped down and beat up because they were all big mouth idiots. <laughs> and then the people that were left were kind of like naysaying us, like, these guys are still fighting? What the fuck? Has it been almost 10 years now? Which you don't think that 10 years is a long time. Then you're going hardcore time and it's like four whole sessions of people have been going. 10 years and hardcore years is like, five generations of hardcore kids <laughs> well yeah and so like now i'm talking about you know i'm 40 i'm 41 so for me it's been i'm going to shows for 28 years now That's and wild. all 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 this comes down to is um philadelphia hardcore was a wild place <laughs> for a lot of reasons and we got to a spot where it was good, but not without a lot of struggle. And part of it is because I do think that part of it is because 
when you have something like a This Is Hardcore every summer, the vibe went up from 06 to 08 just having that. And from 08 to 2010, and then, you know, 12 to 15, it was on another level of, like, locally, shows getting better, you know? Um, and going back to Bob Wilson, you know, that kid came around early 2000s when Punishment was still doing it. He was like a little ass suburban kid, but he's still there. Mm. And when he had let down, I thought he was the biggest little jerk off, and I loved it. Here's some kid that gets on stage, and he's like, hey, I heard some kid died, blah, 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 drunk a driver. Fuck you. I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> fucking little jerk off straight edge kid. I fucking love it. You know, like, <laughs> and people went to fight him all the time. Like, you're not hitting him. And we had to work security at she shows, so no one's going to hit him. And, you know, to the point where there was a time when Bob smacked some beer out of someone's hand. And he was going to play a show in Baltimore in 09. And freshly, I'm freshly out of NHL. You know, I don't think it was 09. It might have been 2010. And I just might have just got off house arrest. And I'm like, I'm still going down there. No one's putting their motherfucking hands on you. No, you know what? It wasn't. You know what? It was before House Arrest. It was 08. It was that blacklisted Have Hard Tour. This is before I got court shit. I'm like, I'm still going to Baltimore. Like, Bob was one of these people that I would stand on stage in another city and stand on stage making sure people know, if you come here to fuck with him, you're going to go through me. You know, like, and in return, fuck, it's crazy. That's been 13 years. Turn, I've watched him go from letdown to Mother Mercy to Beware to Malice the Palace. Now he has his band off the tracks. Like Bob Gibbs, yeah, I was just listening to that demo, uh, like a week or a few days ago, actually. I was just checking, yeah. It out. And it's like he gives back to hardcore now. He, him, and his friends promulgate the entire love of Crutch and Freight Train. They, they, they run that PA hardcore history thing, like. I have never encountered young people. He kills people. it with FIA Fest. Well, so this is what I'm getting to is I've never encountered people that are just positive supporters previously in our story. It's always been self-serving jerk-offs. And you know what? Maybe when he was like a young kid screaming like asshole shit, he might have been a bad, like people that I see a bad. Dude, he's a thousand times more benevolent than I've ever been. And he says there's a good heart, a good heart and like his directional sense of the bands that are coming up. It's insane. Like he's uncanny. Like if he could figure out a way to channel this into like picking something that would make financial moves for somebody, he's going to be able to pick the band. That's going to be big before they know it. Oh, seriously. Like, he, go ahead. And I don't, I don't think he means to make them like, I don't think he says, like, Oh, these will be big. So I like them. I think he genuinely has an ear for what's like constantly going on. And even if Bob was talking the story, Bob's story is almost 20 years at this point. And that's the thing. Um, He's definitely somebody I'd like to talk to at some point. Um, I, you have to do it. Yeah, for and sure. And so the thing is, is when this hardcore, as it grows, Bob starts doing his own shows. First show I, he did through me, I put a Bob Wilson joint up on there and he still uses it and it's like <laughs> another guy might have been like i don't want this kid coming in and taking my shows and it's like i look at the Jocko thing if you if you 
uh, train your replacement and you can go do other stuff. The only thing is, I think Bob, Bob, because he moved to Florida, started FIA. Strategically, it's smarter to do a fest in Florida in January than to do a hardcore fest in Philadelphia in fucking in the summertime. And so I probably never said this on a show before, but if I was anybody else but, but me, I think by now I'd be done doing this as hardcore and would either have passed it off to Bob or told Bob to do his own thing. And I, I always felt bad that I'm still in the picture. I say this to him often. He tells me to shut up, but like, I love him so thoroughly that I just always want him to know that like, as he continues to rise as a promoter, I'm just impressed and so proud of him. And I don't ever want him to feel like, oh, when's this old guy going to get the fuck out of my way? Even though he's only a couple years old. He's like a, he's about the age of what like my little brother would be. Okay. But I never want him to ever feel like I'm in his way. And I, I'm his number one fan, biggest supporter. And what he did with FIA was give the American hardcore fest cycle a true start in January. Mm-hmm. And everything that he did with it, I mean, he's been a silent advisor of this article over a long time, and it's great to see him be able to not only thrive, but flourish with the FYA thing. And it wasn't until the last one he did that I was there. January is always a time where either I have to work because it's a project that is important for me to be on. Like the time I was on the first one of the first years I was doing the Bass Pro in Atlantic City and I was one of the only guys in our union that knew how to do that shit. And then also like, hey, I work union. If there's work in the winter, I gotta take it because sometimes you don't have that. You know, so this is the first year I went and it was just like a like the like truly like a father seeing the fruits of his son's labor. And he obviously like I said Bob's more like a like a little brother to me. But I was just so amazed in what he built and so happy for him, you know? Um, and I, I like to touch on one thing. This thing is like another huge thing that happened is when I was on house arrest, Richie from Wisdom and Chains and a handful of people stayed in touch with me the whole time. And I was going through anger management and um, conflict resolution classes, parenting classes. Uh, all these things, and I started getting exposed to actual therapy. And since that time, a handful of times, I've, I've gone to therapy in, in succession. It's always come later on, like we talked about, like the seeds are planted, and then years later, it all makes sense. A lot of why I can talk like this about the way I used to is because I've been through so much fucking therapy to kind of process past trauma, understand my shortcomings, like just gain perspective. Learn. Yeah. That's like, get it. I mean, and it's not just, I mean, I have friends who are my age that are psychos and they don't have these kind of things because they didn't go through that process. But a lot of this is through this process of, you know, self healing, learning and trying to move forward and make peace with the things that you did wrong make peace with what like I wasn't given in life, you know, like didn't have a dad, didn't really have the, not, not that I didn't have, I mean, my own anger and the ostracization of looking like a metalhead kind of fucked up my behavior, which really fucked me up for going to a better school. Cause I, I had okay grades, but I got into a lot of fights 
And so, like, I always felt like I had a weird start position and all this. But somehow I linked with Hardcore Man, and everything that I would say is good in my life right now is because I went to a Hardcore show when I was 13 years old. You know, like, um, the people that I've met are directly, you know, had I had not had a Hardcore, I wouldn't have had the kids that I have now. You know, yeah. my daughter Kayla, my daughter Kayla at her age, she's 24. The many ups and downs that she and I have had and the chaos of her own personal life between living between her, her mother and myself. I'm so proud of her as an adult and legitimately she's been coming to shows since uh, we started back up. And it's just been like this amazing thing to see this person that you remember when they came out like. Um, we had this awesome moment where we listened to Texas of Reason together when they played at Union Transfer. And it's like something that sticks with me because it's like when she was a baby, she was in her crib listening to Texas of Reason, you know? That's why. And I think if I didn't do all these other things that I was talking about the therapy, right now, none of this shit would matter to me. I'd be still sociopathic, still self serving, still in this cycle of chaos. And all this shit helped me out. And so now, here I am and I'm happy about a lot of things that happened. It's impossible to not want to go back and tweak the things that went wrong. There's things that can't be repaired that are like, Oh, this damage is done. I'm never worried about a legacy in the regard of if I die, the people who hate me are going to hate me. The people who I punched in 1997, all the way up through to 2009, still going to fucking hate me. But what, I want to impact is our culture and the legacy that I want to be a part of isn't my own, but the, it's kind of like if we all have a shared volume of information, I want to add my shared volume of information, whether it's through the, this is hardcore fest or through the podcast or through still just keeping Philadelphia hardcore shows to a high standard. That's what I want to leave. You know, like I feel like a jerk off saying it, but it's like, in 10 years from now, I'll be 51. And then, you know, that'll be almost 35 years of doing shows. What are the bands like going to be in 35 years? Or at that, that stage in 10 years? What heart, Are they going to sound the same? Are they going to sound different? I'm starting to really think about that and go like, do I stop? But then I realize the people that stop that I'm friends with always come back or they regret it. And so... I don't know when I'll stop or if I'll stop, but I won't make a plan for it. It'll have to happen out of some reason why I can't do it anymore and not out of my own volition or like grandiose retirement for something. But I feel like in this story you and I have just talked about in the last three and a half hours. Yeah. The thing that even I'm thinking about listening to all this is like, again, it goes back to what you said, like, there's a lot of friends in this story, a lot of dead friends, a lot of good friends. Had I not had them expose me to this and support me in this, I would have been dead years ago. You know, um, punishment has three dead drummers. We've got two dead roadies. Um, so, I mean, like that's just in like a small, I mean, like the amount of people that I know that have died in hardcore, the amount of people I know that died in our neighborhood, like, I do believe hardcore saved my life. I do believe doing punishment saved my life. Um, and I do believe that not having 
any kind of guidance or stewardship or mentorship let me run some wheels off the tracks. And my mid-20s was the higher power above us, whatever you want to call it, or karma. Allowing the universe to correct me incrementally without giving me a punishment so severe, by the time I finished out the sentence, I couldn't get to where I'm at now. I want to say thank you so much for uh, for setting aside you the have, time. You, I'll, I'll be the pain in the ass one. Do you have anything in all the things I said that you'd like to ask me about? Honestly, dude, I have a lot of yeah. like I have a lot of nerdy stuff I want to ask you about. Go. But you know what? Can let's we? Do, can, can Oh, you! I was gonna say you want to do it now, or you wanna you wanna maybe uh, you wanna sign up for coming back for a part two at some point? Because we're it's already almost at three and a half hours. I don't want my pod track to cut off and oh, separate shit. it. I, you know what? Actually, just looked at the time. Jesus Christ. <laughs> So you know hey. what? Let, let's do it again. You want to come back another time? I love talking to you, man. Yeah. Like seriously, like uh, it's been such a pleasure, and I really appreciate you setting aside well, the time. Go ahead. For me, for me, you and I spent a lot of time just hanging as a person, mm-hmm. like doing mundane shit, playing video games, listening to us talk shit. You know, like I feel comfortable talking like this on a podcast with you because you know the story. And obviously, I, I'm really sorry that we didn't get into some weeds. And maybe when you listen to this, you could either throw your own thoughts or your friend's thoughts, come up with questions that I can get specifics with. But the one thing I never get to do when I do these damn podcasts is explain my own personal drive, struggle, failures, failures, failures. I haven't got to a point where I feel like I have had success yet. But I want people to understand there's an evolutionary process in this and that the things that people saw, whether it was in the early 2000s or the mid 2000s, are still the in the sum of what would make up what the successes were as this hardcore went to a bigger thing. It's all part of the equation. And even recent times, like, I mean, I, I love when someone says like, oh, well, you said this thing. So you have to be stuck to it. I've said a lot of dumb things. I've done a lot of dumb things. You might have to come check with me every month and you might go by, Hey, last month you said this. I'm like, Oh yeah. Then I read this and I found that that's totally wrong. Or, yo, you know, I was totally wrong about that. The one thing that I've learned in the last 20 years, I didn't have when I really needed it was like, yeah. Um, the thing about what I was saying, there was no, there was no supervision. The reason why there's no supervision is because I was moving so fast and just trying to get to that goal. I wasn't thinking ahead and I was just trying to get like this immediate gratification. But I think because of hardcore and the places hardcore is in and the place that Philly hardcore shows are in and the place that my personal life is in with the union work, BJJ, my, 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 my house is a lot more chill. Um, I'm able to be calm and more present and make better decisions. And so if there's a Joe Harcourt that someone's listening to that they ran into that was kind of an asshole, that's not the one I'm at right now. That's an old, that's an old update. You got to update to the newer one, you know, <laughs> Joe, and, Joe 2.0. And, yeah. Not even 2.0, like, like 48 point B2, whatever. But just thank you for letting me ramble on for a couple hours. And Absolutely, thank you for man. Interest. Dude, seriously, my my pleasure. Thank you so much for dedicating the time 
for seriously, man, for everything that you fucking do for hardcore. Like when I told some, I'm not going to say who, but I told somebody that you were coming on you're they were like, yo, the mayor of hardcore, basically. Like, I don't know, dude, like you, you book the shows that we want to see. Like, I can't wait to come to Philly and see the fest in person. Like just all of it. So thank you. Go ahead. Thank you for that. Those kind of words. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I will ever be able to fulfill what I think is like necessary to like get called something like that. But the surreality is, is as I've been doing it longer and longer is there's less people who have been doing it as long as me. And that's a decent, it's a decent line in the sand to say, all right, well, here's, I'm at, I'm right here. But hearing people that I've known for a long time feel that way about me really does mean a lot because as you listen to this story, I just told you a lot of this is me fucking up. And so a, a lot of what I put back at a hardcore is me trying to, if I put positive energy out there and I put positive thoughts towards these things, maybe some of it will come back my way. And so <laughs> if the, if the people now have that kind of, people down that are now have a more positive view of me. That's cool. But it's also, so I can sleep a little bit better knowing I'm not just causing chaos in the world, you know? And, uh, I promise you we'll do another session and we'll come up with like a bunch of questions and I'll stay on topic and I won't just meander. You were great, man. You killed it. Thank you so much. Don't apologize. Uh, All right, brother. Be well. Hey, take care, man. Thank you so much. So that's Joe hardcore, everybody. Peace out, man. Sleep good. Peace. Later. All right, so that was Joe McKay. I want to say thanks to Joe for setting aside the time to come on and talk. It was awesome to just have a great conversation with an old friend and um, just explore a lot of history together. So thank you, Joe. Uh, I want to say thanks to everybody for listening. I want to say thanks to everybody for following um, the Instagram, at Neanderthal Society. Stay tuned for the website. It's going to be neanderthal-society.com. We're on Depop now. Also, at Neanderthal Society. And then the Patreon is still on the way, so sit tight for that. We announced it kind of prematurely, but don't worry. Stay tuned. It's still coming. There's going to be a lot of rad shit over there. Funny stories, sketchy stories, bonus interviews, record reviews, show announcements, all kinds of exclusive shit. So if you like what we're doing and you feel inclined to support it, please check us out on the Patreon, which will be on the way shortly. There's so much cool shit coming up. I can't get into it. I I want to tell everybody, but I just, I can't show my cards just yet. Um, rest assured, there's lots and lots of rad interviews on the way from lots of different people. I know we've been covering a lot of barrier stuff. Joe was the first interview that we did outside of the Bay. Um, again, I'm not going to tell you who's coming up. Lots of legends, lots of behind-the-scenes people, lesser-known characters, photographers, label people, barrier heads, people from all over the world. So stay tuned for what's coming up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. Hardcore lives. Much love. Peace out.